There's something curious about this broadcast. T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, and we have main engine start. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, and liftoff. This is TGP nominal. Commence episode now. All systems remain nominal. Nominal, nominal, Hello everybody and welcome to TGP Nominal, your monthly look at all things science fact and science fiction. Well, I think I'd better bring up the fader and bring in John Berger. How you doing, sir? Mal Brussels. I have no idea. I just wanted to do it. Hi. Well, have that on your own throat for that one. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not a problem. I do that so often. I'm used to it by now. <laughs> so how are you doing? Oh, uh, I'm doing. At least I'm warmer than you are. <clears throat> mm, there, that sounded good. I did say. <laughs> no, 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 no. The allergies, that's different. Uh, yeah, we are We are a bit cold over here at the moment, but uh, unusually so with the, the so-called, and I do this in, in inverted commas, Beast of the East, <laughs> as the UK press are calling it. The weather pattern here, the weather always comes from the West in one way or another. Mm-hmm. For To hear you say that it's coming from the East, it's like London's getting a storm from Russia. What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I just like to call it a cold snap. <laughs> So now the Russians are interfering with your weather. Oh, yeah. Our elections, your weather, when are they going to stop? I I don't know. (laughs) Putin must be some kind of genius. That's all I can say. (laughs) He's got some weather control device that we don't know about. (laughs) There you go. He's got a voting control device we're just now figuring out about. I just get this impression that uh, that the Russians have their own version of that TV show, Pranked. <laughs> and America has been pranked. <laughs> yeah, I'm waiting for the... <laughs> uh, that's, that's all we're going to go into politics-wise. <laughs> hey, we're laughing at it, so, you know. Of course, there are probably some people that are like, what are you talking about that stuff? Okay, so let, let's talk about something else then. Hey, I beat you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, I know where you're coming from here. The <laughs> 3D printer, yeah? 3D print. I finally got my tax return in, and I was like, that's it. I want one. Prices have plummeted. The one that I got is from a company over here called Monoprice. They're really good on things like cables and things like that. And it's not their own printer. It's, it's a Wan Hao, I believe. Some of the 3D printers beat the spec for the one that I I got. I got kind of a mid-range. It's smaller. It's, it, you can only produce much smaller things, but it's even faster than the one I got, and it's 160 bucks wow. for the printer. That's, it's like, holy cow. But really yeah, I finally decided that's it. I'm done. I'm getting it. I'm and it, it's I'm liking it. You've seen the pictures of what I'm doing first. I, I, I've seen the pistol, yeah. Yeah, Han Solo's DL-44. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you've, you've got some work to do on it, though, if you want it to look uh, authentic. Well, you know, it's amazing because doing some research on it, the gun was actually made out of three World War II German weapons. Oh, right. It, the, the, the base was made from a, uh, a Mauser handgun, which mm-hmm. pretty much anybody can, will see it and recognize that. It's been in so many movies. The flash suppressor mm-hmm. comes from a German machine gun, aircraft machine gun. And I forget, the scope comes from yet another German pistol. And when they were putting this stuff together, obviously that was back in the 1970s. So World War II surplus hardware was pretty easy to come across. And so they just built Han Solo's gun out of those three German 
than World War II weapons. So the fact that they're they're real and they're well researched, it really doesn't take much for someone to be able to get the 3D models to make a gun, you know, make a, a model of it. And the one that I downloaded, you know, of course, it's for free. 37 different pieces to it, That's and it looks really good. I just got to prime it and then paint it and assemble it. But I'm even thinking beyond that because where the 9mm bullet uh, magazine would fit, there's enough room in there for a small battery pack, soundboard, mm. you know, maybe even an LED up in the front to simulate a flash, you know. It's my first print, so obviously I'm going to have to refine it for later ones. And, you know, just thinking about this sort of stuff. But yeah, so I've, I've, I've been bitten by the 3D printing bug. And plastic is not expensive either. It isn't. Filament is pretty cheap, actually. At least over here, anyway. Depending on what kind of filament, if you get the basic uh, PLA, which is the plant-based recyclable stuff, yeah, it's $20 for a kilogram, which makes a lot. I mean, I know I've got... How many reels have I got? I've, I've only got small reels. Mm-hmm. But I've got about seven or eight reels. And I've got one that looks like wood. Uh, and then I've got yeah. about mm-hmm. six or seven different colors. And I've got some see-through stuff as well. Yep. Mm-hmm. There's glow-in-the-dark out there, too. Mm, I've seen that. There, there are some that are metal-based as well. In fact, I saw this one 3D printer. I think it was about 700 but it'll take two filaments at the same time. They say they specialize with this one. You can actually print circuit boards because the one filament is the actual circuit board itself. The other filament is the metallic connections. Wow. That's pretty damn cool if you're into that stuff. I mean, things have evolved so much now that there's pretty much no material that cannot be 3D printed. No, I mean, like you said, there's metal infused, there's wood infused. Really what it comes down to is you have to get a 3D printer that can handle it because they all require various temperatures. Mm-hmm. The one that I got can do the hotter temperatures for pretty much any filament I want. If you go for some of the cheaper ones, you, the thing might not be able to get to those temperatures. You can't do that. Yeah, it's just it's amazing to see all the stuff that's out there. I mean, and, and you know all the filaments and so forth that are available. Every color in the rainbow, and then metal and plastic and clear and glow in the dark, and it's just amazing. Oh yeah, some other things that I found: just about every Raspberry Pi case that you can imagine. Really? Oh, I downloaded a few that are like NES consoles, the old Atari Twenty Six Hundred. Uh, the TARDIS. Yeah, that'd be cool. And it's all made so you just stick a Raspberry Pi in there and you're good to go. Mm-hmm. Dude, I'm, It's you got to get that done. It is so much fun to mess with. And, and you, it will take you hours to look through some of the stuff that's available. Even if you just restrict it to one specific topic. So much fun. I'm hoping that my kids will take an interest in maybe developing their own because you could also make your own quadcopter models from it. Oh, wow. You know, and you obviously have to buy the electronic components and so forth, but you can make and design your own and just print it off and then buy the motors and, and all the components for it and then there you go. There are tons of quadcopter plans out there that you can just 3D print. I mean, the motors and things are quite easily accessible because you can get those uh-huh. from pretty much any model store. Yeah. There are a couple of main places out there, but the one that everything seems to go back to is one called Thingiverse that will provide the patterns for free. And you just download them and you... It's kind of cool because there are two pieces to it. You get the actual file. If you want to design it yourself, that's one thing, but then it has to go into what's called a slicer, which is what generates the machine code for the 3D printer. Right. And so you, you pull the image into the slicer and then you configure a whole bunch of different settings from there. 
but it's amazing to see when you're downloading the files to, to do that and throw them into your slicer, how many configuration options there are. You can have it so that it's really cheap and easily breaks, but doesn't use a lot of plastic. You can make it so it's much more solid, which obviously it'll use more, but it, it's so cool to work with and to make those little fine tunings. And, and But I'm telling you, the amount of stuff out there for free that you can download and then print off mm. is ridiculous. I, I'm, I am not kidding that if there is a popular video game out there that involves some kind of weapon, someone has already designed it and made it available. Wow. Anything you can imagine, you know, whether it's Halo or Overwatch or Zelda, if you are a cosplayer, guaranteed your stuff is already out there. That's really cool. It, it's amazing. And, and like the one, well, obviously I've got Han Solo's pistol. Of course, they've got just about any other Star Wars weapon out there. The full-size Star Trek phaser rifle from like First Contact. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's really awesome. I've got the pattern for it. Of course, whoever made it was kind of an idiot and assumes that you have an industrial size printer because it won't fit on mine, which is kind of dumb. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, the Han Solo piece, you know, it's a regular pistol, but it comes in 37 parts. You print them off, which takes a while, and then you just do what you want with them from that point on. I don't know if you saw my post on Facebook. You probably did. But uh, someone came out with... As I look to my Lego model to my right here, that wonderful Saturn V, this yeah. thing is huge. I would say it's over six feet tall when it's finished. Includes the gantry that held it in place. The guy who uploaded this says flat out, no, he doesn't say what kind of 3D printer he's got, but he said that on average, it should take about 2,000 hours just to print the parts. Wow almost three months just to print the parts for this model of the Saturn V. And it's available for free. Something fairly small. How long, on average, does it take to print one item? Uh, that depends on a lot of factors, because one of the things that's cool is that it you put the model into this slicer, and things that are, say, the, the hollow interior, you specify at that point how much fill you want in there. Right. So you can say, I want it to be 20% full. So it'll print a lot faster, but it won't have as strong of an internal structure. You can say, I want it 100% full so that it's a solid piece. It'll take a lot longer, but it'll be a solid piece. Mm -hmm. So it really depends. And then you can say, I want it to go slower so that it has better resolution and that sort of thing really are a bunch of different things the han solo just the the hand piece and even then that's just the frame to it it's not the barrel or or the scope or any of that just the hand piece that was the longest time for me and i think that was 14 hours right i, I will guess that in total 36 to 40 hours to print everything off now again that was I also made a couple of, of boo-boos. you got to really fine-tune that thing, too. Like you, you have to get the printhead 0.1 millimeter above the surface for it to get the perfect kind of, not display, but the, the, to disperse it onto the platter. That takes a lot of fine-tuning. So, And then you could get so far and realize, oh, no, something's wrong, and it's knocking it over or whatever. But I would say on... I, it was. It probably took me about thirty-six to forty hours to print all the parts for the the DL forty-four. That's my guess. Right. Okay. That's not not that bad, really. No, not really. Especially just let it go. 
you can put as many parts onto one single print file as you want. So you could print every single part individually. You can say, I want to throw these five parts into one because they're all small, and then you print those off. There, there are a lot of different things you can do to it. The thing I like about it now is, I mean, the, the, the price of the scanners are coming down all the time. Mm-hmm. It's still quite expensive, but they are coming down. But you get to a point where you break something, and then you could sort of like put it in the scanner, get it scanned, print mm-hmm. it off, you've got a replacement straight away. Chances are someone else already did it for you, yeah. depending on what it is. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, get, get, get going on that. This is fun stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I need to get it, get it going. Right. I think we should start going on with the main part of the I, show. It's going to be a bit different today because we've got a lot to pack in. And we normally do an actual news section, but because we've got such a lot to fit in, we're actually going to keep it down to one topic. And I, I think you guys out there are probably going to realise what that one topic is. But when we come back after this break, we'll explain all. Space. The final frontier. Final because it wants to kill us. Sometimes we forget that. Start taking it all for granted. The suits, the ships, the little bubbles of safety. As they protect us from the void. But the void is always waiting. thought about it a lot why does Britain create so many great filmmakers and actors what is it about Britain that seems to generate these people it's pretty phenomenal the influence we've had on unlike global culture we really punch above our weight when we were making Rogue One, I sort of half-jokingly but half-meaning it said to the producers, well, wait, let's just shoot in Canary Wharf. There's all the guys in the suits, you know, coming home from work, and we're not allowed to tell anyone, it's really secretive, and we're thinking, OK, we're going to film Star Wars, and like, we had hidden Stormtrooper outfits and stuff, and we go in, and within an hour, turned it into the Empire. I went up to one of the art directors and was like, how did you, this was so good, like, how did you do this so quick? And he said, oh, we came in last night and we did a practice run like the extra mile that the crew would always go to. It's kind of like a military operation. The great thing about British crews is they've been doing this, you know, for generations and and they've all inherited off the previous one all these little tricks of the trade. We had an assistant director on the film whose dad worked on the original New Hope and his job on that was to direct the X-Wing pilots for the, for the battle sequence, and his son on our film had exactly the same job. It was really weird. That felt really appropriate. The great thing is on set is no one says no, and you'd say to them, like, you can say no, you know, you, is, is this a problem? And they'd say, no, we don't, we don't do that. Like, they, they sort of pride themselves on giving you everything you want. There's something magical about Great Britain There's so many great examples of British filmmakers, people like Hitchcock and David Lean, 
And it's funny because even people like from outside of the UK, like Kubrick, he ended up making Britain his home because, you know, the crews were so good. I'm Gareth Edwards, director of Rogue One, a Star Wars story, and I'm very proud to say it was made great in Britain. This is TGP Nominal. So, before the break, we mentioned that we got one topic that we're going to speak about. Black Panther. Yeah, that would be pretty cool. I haven't actually seen it yet. Obviously, I've seen clips oh, of it. and so it, good. Yeah, it does look really cool. So um, good. And uh, I don't know if you saw on the, the Facebook page, there was a story that I put up about the, the people behind the movie are actually funding a STEM outreach center in Oakland, California for underprivileged kids, mm-hmm. which is really cool. Yep. But no. That's <laughs> not what we're going to be talking about, although I mean, we could. We could. But, <laughs> but uh, uh, that's not what we had planned. What we we'll wait till you see it. Yeah, yeah. Because I definitely need to get to go see that. So uh, good. The uh, one thing I will say about that is, did you see those guys that went to that premiere dressed up as um, King Jaffe Joffa from Zamunda? King who the what? Coming to America. Oh, oh my God. Are you serious? The big lion thing across his chest and everything. Oh, no, I didn't see yeah, that. Yeah, he turned up to the <laughs> premiere wearing that. I thought, that's so cool. <laughs> that's funny. To, that's to, unlike, unlike the theater in Atlanta that started to show Fifty Shades of Grey or the, whatever the latest movie is instead of Black Panther. Really? Oops. <laughs> really weird that this guy tried to merge the two. <laughs> <laughs> I, that's that's kind of brilliant, actually. I'll have to try and find the find the pictures and put them in the show notes because it's yeah, I want to see that. Worth a look. <laughs> <laughs> but did he go to a showing in Queens? Oh, that would have been good, wouldn't it? See that that would have made it perfect. <laughs> <laughs> If, if, if there's anybody out there that doesn't know what the hell we're talking about, you really need to see. And it's an yeah. old film, but it's it's probably one of. Eddie Murphy's best movies oh, yeah. by far, um, apart from Beverly Hills Cop, of course. But <laughs> yeah. that was a good movie. It is really well put together, and the fact that you know Eddie and and Arsenio Hall are playing multiple characters in it as well. It's from oh, how old? Is it? It's probably about 1988 or something like that. Something like that. And uh, yeah, it's funny. <laughs> so. On to what we're supposed to be talking about. You're good. June 26th, 1988. Wow. Well done, sir. <laughs> you can tell I spent most of my time in the 80s. <laughs> Popular culture from the 80s is, is my thing. I, I used to be the go-to kid when it came to 80s music for quizzes and stuff like that. But um, one thing we had to come on the show and talk about, what can I say? Falcon Heavy. Oh, that was amazing. Wasn't it? It was one of these moments. Some people are actually saying it is this generation's moon landing. Uh, maybe this generation's first space shuttle launch? I think probably more towards that. Mainly because this generation's moon landing probably will be a moon landing. <laughs> It, yeah, probably will be. <laughs> probably. But no, I mean, it, it, it's not the same. No. Yeah, it's... 
I, it's difficult to describe. I think where they were coming from with that is the fact that the whole world was getting excited about this one thing. Even people that weren't into space and stuff knew about it. Right. Maybe not for the rocket, but maybe for what it was payloaded with more than anything else. <laughs> Which I yeah. must admit, I had tears in my eyes when those fa- that fairing came away. Uh, it wasn't at first. I, I knew it was coming, but the bit that hit me was when you saw Don't Panic on that, that was display. funny. I was in tears. and uh, Really? That hit you that hard? Yeah. It really did. I, I saw it and I laughed because I thought, that's brilliant. But that's about as far as it went. Yeah. It's cause to me, knowing how much those kind of pieces of literature meant to Elon Musk, to, to actually have that there, it was, it, it hit me in that way. And then you're hearing other things like apparently in the glove box of the car there was a copy of Hitchhikers and possibly a towel. Yeah, on that little teeny tiny optical disc that they had. Yeah, with um, what was on that? Was it um, Isaac Asimov, wasn't it, I think? Yeah, I think so. And there was also one of the circuit boards Uh uh, under the hood. There was uh, a plate that actually said, made on Earth by humans. Yep. Which was really cool. And the, the plate also that the car was actually attached to with the signatures of everybody that was involved with yep. that project. That was cool. And, and yeah, it was awesome to see that thing just Earth floating in the background. Yeah. David David Bowie playing. That kind of hit me as well, to be honest. And the amount of people on in the media that got that wrong, they were oh, saying... Really? Oh, yeah, you know, the the car was floating in space to the sounds of David Bowie's Starman. No, life on Mars, you know, get with it. And then some of them were saying it was Space Oddity. No, it wasn't. No. <laughs> you really don't know your David Bowie star. I mean, granted, he is up there floating in a tin can, yeah. but n- no. But, yeah. but, I mean, let, let's face it, even with all of that, the biggest, oh my god, are you bleeping kidding me, was the two side boosters coming down and saying. double landing was, it was like wow. a sci-fi movie. It was that unbelievable. Was nuts. The sonic booms from those. I mean, there was, well, you, you got them from all three of the, the boosters, didn't you? So you got the, the six sonic booms. But that was fantastic, and there are some really great footage, unofficial footage, of people in the local vicinity uh, that they were just brilliant, because you don't pick up those booms on the actual feed, do you? No, no, you don't. So Elon Musk has now confirmed that for the future of the Falcon 9 missions, um, the two side boosters will not always return to the landing zones um, like they did in the, the launch there. Uh, in some cases, because they involve tight fuel margins and heavy satellites, mm. they need to have an extra ship, and they have actually now confirmed that there's a third ship, isn't there? Yeah. Which is called the, the Shortfall of Gravitas, which all three are named after spacecraft featured in uh, Ian Banks's culture novels. Unfortunately, the Centacore was supposed to land on Of Course I Still Love You, but it didn't quite make it. I think it was like no. 300 feet away it, it landed. In At 300 miles an hour. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Of Course I Still Love You was actually damaged 
Yeah. But, I mean, so would you be if uh, something had hit the water at 300 miles an hour and then kind of caused a tidal wave to, yeah. <laughs> to hit you? It, it actually took out two of the engines on the ship. That's pretty powerful. <laughs> yeah. Did you hear his response to that, though, when, when he finally identified that? His, his response was just kind of like, yeah, we know how to fix that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it ran out of fuel. Not enough ignition fluid to light yeah. the outer two engines after two or three engine relights. So they tried and tried and tried to get it to go. It just wouldn't happen. Um, and he just stated the fact, ah, the fix is pretty obvious. Yeah. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, okay. But yeah, all things considered, okay, so you lost the center core. Big deal. Mm-hmm. Everything else is just a ridiculous ridiculous success I mean when you when you look at it I mean it did go slightly higher than it would do normally so coming back down at a different rate of power than it would do normally uh, there's a chance that um, there's going to be a problem with that whereas the two outer stages they were coming at a, virtually the same rate as it would the center core would have done normally mm-hmm. it's pretty likely that they're going to land okay and they just did that spectacularly. It really, yeah, really that was did. And even at that, with that center core, it was this close. Yeah. It was so close. So close. It sounds like they're going to try again in um, June mm. for Falcon Heavy launch. And there are already people wanting to put missions on it. One being the US Air Force, mm-hmm. and one would be Arabsat. Uh, oh, okay. Arabsat 6 is a Saudi company, and this mission will involve a communications satellite, while the latter mission will involve a test payload for testifying that this missile is suitable for national security. Having said this, the mission for the next Falcon Heavy is to transport the most powerful atomic clock into space. NASA has confirmed by saying that an ultra-precise atomic clock the size of a full-slice toaster is set to zip into outer space this summer. It just describes what an atomic clock is, but it doesn't exactly explain why they want to do this. Oh, I I guess it just goes back to the whole because we can. Probably. Uh, Unless they want something more conclusive related to theory of relativity? Uh, Atomic clock and how it reacts in a no-gravity environment. It's the only thing I can guess. So you know what? As long as we're talking about payloads and so forth, we might as well at least touch on this one. There was a little bit of a controversy regarding putting up a Tesla. Actually, a lot of the people that I follow that who are actually in the industry were kind of upset by this. Hmm. I guess their whole attitude was, even if it is something that was disposable, if the rocket went up, so what? But put up something that could have provided some kind of scientific data. Or there were others who were saying, maybe get um, school kids to put a project together that could be sent up into space. There's that. Who's to say there isn't something on board? You'd think we'd know that by now. (laughs) You know what he's like. Yeah, but I would think that if kids actually did put something on there, kids being kids, they would have let the world know. Yeah, they they can't keep quiet for long. (laughs) So... I guess the only thing about that whole controversy that, that really upset me is the fact that we love Steph Evs and we're, we greatly respect her and so forth. Yeah. And people were just going at her and other people who agreed with her like some kind of 
butthurt Elon Musk fanboys. Guys, we can have differing opinions. You don't have to be a jerk about it. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's just like the Apple guys, to be honest with you. Doesn't matter what Apple bring out, they think it's the best thing ever. And well, let's face it all. Just about anything has their fanboys to that degree, too. Mm, My daughter's always complaining about Zelda fans acting that way. I can see it from both sides, to be honest with you. I like the novelty factor of it. I think it brought the whole world into the whole thing. Because if it had been a science experiment that was sent up, there would have been half a planet that wouldn't have known about it or cared. Oh, sure. Any kind of science experiment doesn't really have a cool factor to it. Mm -hmm. This is the the biggest advertising campaign you can have for Tesla, to be honest with you. (laughs) You can't get better than that for an advert. I mean, I know these people spend thousands and thousands of dollars and millions of dollars on advertising campaigns to go on Super Bowl and things like that. That is the best advertising you could buy for free advertising, to be honest with you. Although, did you hear the latest worry now? about setting up a Tesla? Because it was his own personal Tesla and it wasn't manufactured in a clean space, now there's a whole bunch of worry about whatever bacteria and microbes are on it. I don't... It's legit, but... Unless it was... If it is going to crash land on another planet, which wouldn't happen, that's the only risk you'd have with that. The fact Mm -hmm. is there is now a very, 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 very slight risk that it might actually come back to Earth. Uh, We're talking about that. Um, It'll just burn up anyway, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, considering that it's got no kind of heat shield to it. (laughs) If it survives it, I'll be very surprised. That's going to melt so quickly. (laughs) I don't think there's anything particularly to worry about with that. Only if it made it to some planetary surface would there be an issue. But it's not designed to do that it wasn't the trajectory mind you the trajectory was to go around Mars but it just overshot it yeah that's that's just silly (laughs) (laughs) and we're talking about a car that's floating around in space yeah that's true too (laughs) (laughs) one of the first things I thought because at at first I didn't realise there was going to be uh, a mannequin in the car and obviously it's in the spacesuits that they want to use for the the dragon capsules when they mm-hmm. can make them uh, human rated cool looking spacesuit it is very cool but the first thing i thought of was oh what an episode of top gear this is um, <laughs> got the stick being sent into space <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, it was an outstanding day. And granted, it was delayed a few times. And uh, you expect that, Uh, especially for a first launch. You want to make sure everything is perfect. But you've seen that video of um, Elon in the control center looking at the monitors going, that thing's actually taken off. (laughs) (laughs) Running I really did think he expected that thing to blow up. Oh, that's so cool. But somebody's modified that. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the joke version of that video. Uh-oh. <laughs> it's really funny, actually. It's, somebody's done uh, done the lip read, uh, reading thing, so they've... they've oh, modified. man. And, and Elon's saying, is that thing actually flying? 
I parked my Tesla in that. And uh, he's running outside saying, guys, you've got to stop that rocket. My Tesla's in there. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that was gorgeous to watch. The dual booster landing was just... I can sit wow. and watch that on repeat again and again, just that section. Oh. There was a lot of uh, controversy also about the fact that most of the crowd in that SpaceX building there was, majority of them was male. Yeah. Unfortunately, when it comes to that kind of stuff, you're going to get a lot of these guys that push themselves to the front. Yeah. You can, I'm, I'm not saying there wasn't any females there. I'm damn sure there was, there was females there. But you didn't see them, and it's quite sad to see because a lot of women work at SpaceX and put all the time mm-hmm. and effort into it, and it didn't really come across in the coverage. I can understand why some people are quite upset by that. Oh, yeah, I understand that. I, I, to be honest, I thought that too when we were watching it. Mm-hmm. I was like, wow, that's a lot of white guys. When they did the first Falcon 9 launch that sent one of the Dragon capsules up to the uh, space station, you actually got to see the crowd quite close up. And there mm-hmm. was a lot of women in the audience there. You oh, yeah. actually get to, got to see a lot of them, but you, di- you didn't get to see them on this. And um, I mean, I know quite a few women that actually work for, for SpaceX, and you, you always get these people that try and push themselves to the front. You're always going to get those. Yeah. Uh, and unfortunately, Unfortunately, a lot of them are men. We can't dispute anything about the, the female contributions to everything in space because there is so many very talented women out there that need to have the space to be able to be seen because... Mm-hmm. Without harassment. Yeah. That's the big key. Yeah, definitely. It's a, it's a tricky situation because for so long it, it has been a, a very male dominated industry and a lot of the women were behind the scenes and and now Mm -hmm. people are learning about uh, the the big contributions that women have made to the all of the space industry from the early days of nasa right up to um things like new horizon where Mm -hmm. uh, i think i've said it before that was something like 25 percent of the the team were female right working on that project and and some of them were from the uk i must say there you um, go. <laughs> i always have to put that in there but it is it's a big thing that needs to be sorted out because there's there's no room for it in this day and age no there's not and and the fact that they can do that means as far as i'm concerned they should people like Steph Evans and I, and I follow a lot of people who have doctorates in their particular scientific degrees that are women. Mm-hmm. The fact that they have those degrees and they can do what they do, okay, they're smarter than me. I don't have a problem with this. You know, my manhood is not so fragile that I consider them to be a threat. That's like, hey, you're smarter than me. If you can do that job, you go for it. I don't care who they are. If they are able to do the job, then so be it. Yeah. Then uh, that that goes for whatever gender, whatever um, race, whatever. It yeah. doesn't matter to me at all. No, doesn't matter if the person's in a wheelchair or whatever. It, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. If that person can do it, do it. Yeah. Without harassing them about it. Yeah. I I just don't understand why that seems to be so difficult for a lot of people. That's it. I mean, why why should somebody have to push harder than anybody else to try and make a name for themselves? Everybody should be on an equal plane. Do you know what I mean? It seems, uh, when I've talked to 
talk to women about this kind of thing that you know they have to be the same as their male counterparts and then some to be recognized which is not right one of the other things i got with my tax returns i've always wanted one and i wanted to tinker with it was a raspberry pi Mm -hmm. and it's really cool because there are a lot of kits out there um, that have a whole bunch of other things to them like i bought another one The, the raspberry pi itself was about 50 bucks for everything you know the power supply the case blah blah blah, blah. Um, but there was another thing that I got with it that is this kit that has a breadboard and a whole bunch of LEDs and wires and and motors and stuff like that to hook up to it well I got my 10 year old daughter down and we were both working on it because they have like 10 different step by step projects that you could do just to, just to get uh, used to working with it alright yeah. and she was down there with them for the whole thing, for installing the OS, for downloading the, the code for it. And the, the one project, I, I let her do all the wiring, and she, she did it without a problem. You know, 10 years old, and she's there wiring up this Raspberry Pi with all these LEDs to a breadboard. Uh-huh. And the one had eight LEDs, and the program was to make them go in sequence. So we're looking at the Python code right there on the screen. And she was asking, yeah, I wonder how I could, you know, she's just totally mind blown at this point that something that she just put together is now blinking in sequence. She's like, well, I wonder how I could make that go faster. And I said, well, I don't know, according to the code. And she immediately picked up the variable. She's like, oh, it must be that one. Okay. You know, so just by looking at the code, she knew exactly what variable needed to be changed to make that thing speed up. Mm-hmm. So I said, go ahead and change it. And... You know, okay, it was using VI, so I had to help her with that. But anybody who knows Unix and knows VI knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> but she changed the value, ran it, and all of a sudden it's blinking like crazy, and she is thrilled with herself. And the one part had it go backwards and then forward. And she's like, huh, I wonder if there's a way to uh, make it just go in one direction. And I looked at the code and it said, well, I don't know, what section do you think there might cause that? She said, oh, let's comment out those four lines. And sure enough, that's exactly what it needed to do. Now, she's 10 years old. She's clearly got an engineering mind. Mm -hmm. I'd be an idiot if I felt threatened by that. I'm thrilled for I would love for her to be an engineer and to keep going with it. Yeah. The fact that there are guys out there who would actually feel threatened by that is mind-blowing to me. The only reason somebody would be threatened by that is because they're not actually good at what they do. Yeah, I could see that. And somebody comes in who actually is good at what they do, and it just exposes what they have been doing for so many years, and that's what they're worried about. Well, I think there's also that, plus there is still a segment of the population who goes under that attitude of, well, girls shouldn't be getting involved in that sort of thing. Why not? That just makes no sense to me. You're going to restrict her to playing with with dolls and frou-frou items. No, she wants to be building stuff. You know, she wants to be making displays and and programming and building robots and stuff like that. And you're going to try to force her to keep doing the traditional 1960s, 1950s girly things? Really? Get with the program. I just get amazed when... It doesn't matter who it is, but when I see a kid actually achieving something, mm-hmm. it's something special, but it should be nurtured. That's the way I see it. No, and we're in agreement. We're in agreement. 
and to see my daughter's eyes light up, no pun intended, because she made these LEDs do what she wanted them to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, this she wasn't the only one who was really proud of what she just did. To be quite honest with you, I get like that when I get something to work. (laughs) (laughs) Especially if it works first time. You know, you come up with an idea and you think, yeah, that should work. On paper, it looks good. You try it, it works first time. You think, yeah, I'm a genius. And (laughs) (laughs) I just think, oh, good, now I don't have to debug it. (laughs) So I think what we're going to do is end this section here and come back after a break when we come back we're going to be listening to a piece that uh, we got sent to us from one of our honorary crew members you may remember us talking about it in previous episodes where we asked our listeners and people on social media to send in questions to Dr. Ryan Kobrick during his time at the uh the Mars Desert Research Station in Utah. And Ryan kindly answered these questions and sent us back an audio file exclusively for us. Did you know that right now we have a spacecraft orbiting the moon? The Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter has been at the moon for over seven years, providing unprecedented detail into our nearest neighbor in space. I'm Noah Petro, and for more information about the moon and the LRO mission, go to nasa.gov slash LRO and follow us on Twitter at LRO underscore NASA. Blast off into the potosphere with TGP Nominal. Greetings from the Mars Desert Research Station. My name is Dr. Ryan Kobrick. I'm a professor at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University, and I'm also the chairman and president of URI's Night, the Worldwide Space Celebration. At Embry-Riddle, I'm proud to be the principal investigator of the Spacesuit Utilization of Innovative Technology Laboratory, or Suit Lab. And as you all know, in the space industry, you have to have a cool acronym. It always helps, right? And a cool patch. So check out our logo and our website and all that fun stuff. So I'm here today to answer your questions, the listeners of TGP Nominals podcast, a lot of great questions. I've kind of scanned through them and I would say that it's a lot easier to just kind of do them one at a time, kind of march through them and just kind of have a discussion with everyone. And I hope that in the future I'll be able to be on other shows or be able to answer things live because obviously here on Mars we have a communication delay of about 20 minutes. So it takes about 10 minutes on average for the signal to go from Earth to Mars and then another 10 back. So the only way you can really do communications is through delayed audio recordings or video recordings um, and can't really have that instantaneous connection, which is probably one of the more or most difficult things that a crew will face on a future mission. So I'm here and I'm in a two-week simulation and uh, it's been very productive. We've had a lot of different experiments we've been working on and I'll be happy to share with those with you as well. But I'd rather jump right to your questions and see see where that takes us because it might end up answering some of them anyway. So we've got a question here at the top from Mick Scott. Why are the missions so short? I would have thought that part of the observations would be to study how we as a race would manage for a long period of time living with virtual strangers. Two to three weeks is not much more than a period of time spent on a holiday vacation. Uh, Absolutely great point. The key for the two week rotations is that 
the Marsh Society is really looking at how many different permutations of individuals and backgrounds can they put through this given environment and simulation to see what might make up the best possible crew combination. There's been a whole bunch of different human factor studies that have been conducted over the years here. And so as those longer duration uh, studies occur, it really helps collect data. And so far, this is my fifth mission at the Mars Desert Research Station, and all the crews have been completely different. They, they have a different uh, flavor and attitude and have different projects to work on, so each one is a unique experience. So it's not like you're visiting the same spot over and over. Uh, I was also lucky enough to be part of a long-duration mission in the Arctic on Devon Island, and I was part of a crew that spent over 100 days in simulation uh, during four months living on Devon Island at the Flashline Mars Arctic Research Station, and that was back in 2007. So there are longer duration missions in different ways. The key to a good analog station is that you want to match as many variables as possible to make it as close to a real Martian mission. Uh, unfortunately, you know, there's drawbacks to each location or there's strengths to each location. So no matter what, you're not going to simulate one-third gravity, which they would experience on Mars at a field station. But you could do that on like a vomit comet ride by just changing the profile of the airplane and experience what it would be like to almost bounce, run, or walk on Mars. So the other being the atmosphere, Mars only has 1% of Earth's atmosphere. And so it's, it's completely different dynamic of how the, the way things move, uh, but also, of course, you need to wear a spacesuit and have proper life support systems. So moving on to the next question from Michael Lingefelter, and I apologize if I'm a little off on names. How long is your average workday when you're at the station? The projects and experiments that are done at the station can be stressful. What do you do in your time off or off time if you have any? So this is a two-week rotation, so we are trying to get as much in as possible because uh, it's a very unique location and we want to take advantage of that. We usually are gathering around 8 a.m. and that's having breakfast and we usually do kind of a morning briefing by 8.30 a.m. So that means we're really up at like 7.30ish to 8 depending on when people want to get out. And uh, a lot of the times we're working until like 10 or 11 p.m. So it's a really long work day. It's pretty intense. We also have kind of a calm window from 7 to 9 p.m. when we're working on reports, like daily reports, to tell the Mars Society and the, the people involved any issues that might come up, the status of all the systems, uh, making sure we have a journalist report and a kind of an uh, ops report on, on the engineering side of things, as well as a daily summary so that we can share that with uh, people back on Earth, if you will and with daily photos. So all of that takes a lot of extra work and that, that means all six members of our crew have at least two hours a day that they're working on that. Um, so you can, you can do the math and that adds up really quickly to a full work week uh, if you combine the work hours. So uh, yeah, a lot of time uh, spent on that. There's not a lot of time off in a short duration mission like this. Uh, we did have kind of an afternoon off one of the days in the middle just to make sure people could do whatever work they wanted to do versus having uh, a specific objective because that does come up pretty often where we're like, we really need to focus on cl helping collect data for so-and-so's project so that way they can complete it on time while they're out here. I hope that answers the question. So Makia Eustis, uh, uh, which is at astro underscore Eustis, sent in a question saying, any application advice for an aspiring analog astronaut? How will your team use your mission to inspire and communicate to the public about STEM and space? So let's do that in two parts. So 
with analog research, it is a little bit of pay to play, meaning that there are places that you can go just you know, being able to making sure that you're, uh, you meet the minimum requirements of a given station. I know that the Mars Society allows students to join crews. You don't necessarily have to put your whole crew together yourself, but sometimes crew applications might have four or five people saying that they're flexible to having another person added. So there are opportunities for individuals to jump on a team that way. There's no specific advice. I think if you're interested and passionate about it, you'll find your way out to one of these stations or multiple stations. I mean, I, I would love to now you know do all of them, which is, I think everyone here, now my crew wants to do the same. But there's definitely more opportunities now than there were before. Uh, multiple stations o opening up in Europe. We've got Poland, we've got Israel, and um, also the big mission going on during this month is MD out in Omen, um, which is a huge international collaboration. So there's a lot of opportunities. So it's just, you know, depending on where you are in the world, try to figure out how you can get involved with your local group and see if there's interest to maybe apply as a group. For a crew. So that's the first part. The second part was about inspiration, the public, outreach. I think our group, especially, you know, almost every group I've been involved with in these simulations seem to have a common passion to want to share the, not just their story, but the overall story of space exploration and why Mars is so important for humanity and our future. It's not because it's a backup plan, it's because we need to protect Earth, our, you know, our plan A. We need to learn what uh, advanced life support and water filtration uh, is like so we can provide clean water around the world and really protect our planet and our people and of course everything else, not just the, not just the people but our whole mother Earth if you will and all the animals and plants and everything else. Maybe not mosquitoes. I'm not a fan of mosquitoes, but uh, I, I'm not the one to make any decisions like that. So uh, what I was trying to get at is that we all naturally like to share things on social media. Uh, we're, all, we're using Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, as well as other uncommon formats, uh, depending on the personal backgrounds. But we use personal things as well, email, WhatsApp. I mean, as long as you're not chatting in real time on these things, it's perfectly reasonable that you could send a message through any medium and 20 minutes later, you'd be able to uh, have a response back to you. So it's a little bit different style of chatting. It's almost like a completely lagged out chat where you might be answering something where the next question's already taken care of the first question, but you don't know that. So you can actually build that into computer delays as well, but that that's more of the crew's discipline to make sure they do that. Uh, other things are, I've been posting videos on YouTube. My channel is called Ry Kobe, R-Y-K-O-B-Y. I've been posting time-elapse videos from my EVAs or my field excursions. I've been, I posted a HAB tour, uh, posted a few videos for kids around the world. I posted even a video of me assembling Lego with my big spacey gloves from Final Frontier Design. That was mostly for my son Rafi. So all of those things relate to communication and inspiring the next generation. Uh, we have lots of questions. This is great. Thank you, Micaiah. Let me uh, scroll down. Micaiah or Micaiah or Micaiah, I'm sorry. Hopefully one of those is close and you can correct me later. What's the role of the commander of a Mars analog mission involved? So as the commander of this, this mission or a commander on other missions, you're really responsible for making sure that you've helped budget all the time necessary to accomplish the objectives of the mission. And in this case, that's all the scientific projects and uh, uh, not just science, but artistic projects as well that we want to complete while being in this unique environment. 
So that, that's kind of the main role. And it's, it's a leadership role. You help make decisions if people aren't quite sure what the next step should be taken. If there's, just say, an emergency or a problem or a conflict, um, you're kind of like the, the mediator. Sometimes you end up, that ends up removing the commander from some of the experiences, but so far not here. I mean, this crew has been awesome and I really enjoy working with everyone and it's a, it's a great experience with them and I hope that I can go to other analog stations with them in the future. Next question was Dr. Sarah Jane Pell joins the crew as an artist and resident. How important is art to the missions? Art is critical. It has been extremely important for the crew's well-being to be creative and have an outlet and to be encouraged to have that outlet and to have someone who's a professional that can relay advice and also the opportunity to be involved with their projects. So all of those things are, have been great. We even have, even our crew astronomer, Julia, who's a great photographer, has really opened our eyes to some of the things that how we can edit photos even to share some of our content on social media um, so little pieces of people's talent like that do get shared and it's important that we learn how to uh, use these skill sets to help communicate as well i hope that answered the question but basically yes art and space definitely all the time i mean what we do in space human space flight in general is storytelling we're telling people what we're up to we're communicating as best as we can um, about the missions and we're trying to get them excited and it's not just because taxpayers are paying for a lot of these things and we need them to be interested and invested but it's important for our humanity and our future what kind of experiments will be carried out during the duration of the mission and is some of the research from them carried on from previous missions? Great question. Um, each person here has their own research projects that they've brought to the station. Everyone applied to be on this crew. This is uh, all alumni from the International Space University. And so in that application process, each member had to um, offer up with how they would be involved as well. Some of the projects, yes, kind of are continuations, but they're really morphed over time from other experiences, if you will. So there's not, we're not doing a, a project, for instance, that the previous crew ran, except for in the sense that, you know, we're the next crew in line. And if you think of engineering and maintenance for the habitat as a project, then absolutely we're involved with that. So personally, I'll go into my stuff because uh, I don't want this to be a super long recording. But uh, my focus is on human performance and the human side of space flight in terms of engineering and operations. I'm looking at spacesuit mobility and range of motion, so we're measuring that with video capture. So we have astronauts, our simulated astronauts, putting on these simulated spacesuits and seeing how much they can move in them uh, with respect to not wearing a suit, so we get to see the differences. And so this is a project that I'm working on with my lab at Embry-Riddle. And we're also doing motion capture in my lab at Embry-Riddle, where we have cameras set up all over the room, and we're actually getting all that motion in 3D. So the older version was this kind of video, two-dimensional, let's see how much the elbow bends or doesn't bend. Uh, but now we're really able to look at the, the dynamics of the body in multiple different ways. So I think that's going to be important for understanding the work envelope and how we can be effective performers, if you will, in terms of uh, energy consumption and everything else. So related to energy and workload, I'm looking at an EVA metric study where when you're out in the field on these simulated surface missions all over the terrain, 
I'm measuring the biometric side of things in terms of heart rate, respiratory rate, um, accelerations of the body to understand, uh, you know, how, how big of an exercise, it, if you will, is the astronaut going through in this mode of transportation and work. And I know that from, there's a huge range. I had uh, one EVA where I was essentially just sitting on the ATV the whole time and we were scouting the region and mapping it, uh, where another one was where we hiked to Phobos Peak, um, which was a grueling hike even my the soles of my boots ripped off and we had a macgyver them back on um so i could continue you know fog building up from the being in the helmets and everything and so pretty intense stuff and we got great data on that so i'm looking forward to analyzing that with my students uh, we're also looking at time and duration how far the astronauts go on, in the field and really trying to figure out is there a prescription for i guess you could say a regulated uh, schedule like how often should you go on EVA or do field work and I kind of you know half joke half seriously say an, an EVA a day keeps the doctor away keeps your uh, immune system built up when you're exercising like that and so I think it's a great idea for a shorter mission but a longer duration mission you wouldn't want to do that you'd have to space them out um, so maybe the data that we provide here and that we collect around the world will help with that I'm also looking at dust, so my PhD work was on dust abrasion, looking at how dust ripped apart the spacesuits on the moon. On the moon, there's no atmosphere, and so the uh, micrometeorites smash into the surface and pulverize those particles into sharp pieces of regolith, and they're very glass-like. And so during the Apollo missions, they were scratching their visors and dials, and it was getting hard to see. They were getting small micro tears in their spacesuit materials. Even small pressure leak rates were noticeable from um, from all of that. So um, because of that, very cognizant of the dusty environment. So I'm doing a project with the NASA Glenn Research Center where I'm looking at the dust load, how much dust is actually getting into the habitat uh, so that we can quantify what we can expect the astronauts to face. And it's really important for health issues to keep the astronauts safe to make sure that they're not breathing in or literally eating, crunching this dust between their teeth uh, and a lot of other potential health effects but also the equipment. We don't want the equipment to get worn away. We don't want things to get all covered in dust or short circuit. So we need to figure out what that load is so we can make equipment robust. And so the group I work with specializes in filters. Uh, they have filters on the space station. And so we're doing a whole bunch of things where we're drawing in this dusty air through these uh, different detectors to get an idea of what we're up against. And of course, you know, we're here on Earth, um, but it should give us an idea for know how dirty these astronauts might get on the surface of another body and uh, I can tell you it's really dusty out here everything has a at least a thin layer of coating of dust on it as well so I'll have to clean everything not just me when I get home so I'm working with Final Frontier Design with their TMG thermal micrometeorite garment outer layer gloves so these gloves go over the pressure suit of the spacesuit and you'll see the those big gloves on the astronauts when they're working out in space on space station and so the idea is to test these gloves here in a surface environment like a hard working environment um, to look at if there's wear and tear on them so again linking back to my previous work and how they might function in this kind of environment making sure I have the right dexterity to be able to do tasks that are needed in the field and so that's been a lot of fun and they're they look great in photos of course too this question might have already be answered but i want to read it out anyway you mentioned on social media that you'll be wearing bioharness and skin temperature monitor to pilot data collection for evas does that make it difficult to carry out tasks 
when you have sensors, et cetera, connected to you? So the, the short answer is yes and no. So it really depends on the device. You want your devices to be as unobtrusive as possible, meaning they don't interfere with your motion or they don't hurt. And so um, I have a shirt by a company called Hexoskin that our, our, our other lab at Embry-Riddle bought. And it's, I don't even notice it. It's kind of like a, a spandex tank top and the respiratory kind of bands that are within it they're not too tight so they don't interfere with like my breathing and yeah it, it has a little data logger on it and it measures all those things it's great the uh, skin temperature is a small little it's almost like a little um, teardrop shape not a puck that's too big but uh, it's like the size of a couple of quarters american quarters a canadian loony and a quarter put together or whatever you want to however you want to phrase it but it's a small device and it's actually used for infants to monitor their temperatures and so i actually taped that to my underarm that one's actually not uncomfortable i thought that one would bother me i thought that it would fall off the technology itself has its limitations because I need to carry my smartphone on Bluetooth with me for it to data record. So, you know, that's an operational thing, but that's not a, a comfort thing. But of course, there are plenty of other temperature devices out there. The one that was a problem that needs more work, so if someone's looking for a, you know, a graduate engineering operation type project, is the um, blood oximeter. I was trying to wear it as a, on my ear as an ear clip, and it tells you your oxygen saturation level. It also tells you your heart rate, but I'm getting that data from my uh, Hexoskin shirt anyway. So with that data, again, you can look at um, oxygen consumption and work performance, all those fun things. And it was, it didn't, it barely would work on my ear, it, like it wouldn't maintain its connection. And it was really painful, but I did it for science, pain for science, a couple times. And it's just not really a feasible thing to really, that style of thing to wear. Um, so I did try it with a, it comes usually with a finger clip. And it wasn't going to work on a finger because there's not enough room in the gloves. But uh, I figured I could wear it on my thumb. And so I actually fit it on my thumb under the glove for that really hard, grueling hike up Phobos Peak because I knew that I would need my hands, but I wouldn't really need to grip anything. It was more to help me scramble up the mountain and down the mountain um, because you really want your hands free anyway when you're doing that kind of uh, hiking. And, you know, you stop and you take out your camera and do things like that, but you want your hands free so you can help catch yourself if you slip or anything else that happens. So uh, anyway, that worked, but it was not comfortable and uh, didn't do. I didn't repeat that again. So there's definitely a spectrum between things hurting and not hurting, and what's what work makes sense. Let's see. What is the process for selecting crew members, and how did the how did the crew get involved? So we actually put in a full application as a International Space University alumni crew. That was done through Renee, our team lead, if you will, our project manager on this. This is the third year that it's run. It's called Team ISU on Mars, and I believe the website is isuonmars.com, and also on Twitter and Facebook. Definitely check out our photo highlights there. So through that program, we had a competitive selection and uh, I was kind of recruited in to be involved with this particular mission. And so uh, I was helping a little bit with that selection as well, but it was really on Renee's shoulders to, that really made this happen. So it's you know, very thankful for her initiation and this, the creation of this entire program. Okay, the next one, next question. This is Crew 188. Does that, does that mean that there has been 188 missions since the Mars Society created the project and how often do the missions take place? That is mostly correct. I mean, there have been 187 missions at the Mars Desert Research Station before ours. We're the, we are the 188th out here. That doesn't include 
the field rotations that are done by people who come here to work on construction and repairing the hab. A couple times in the very, like 10 years ago in the past, they used to count those as missions as well. But yeah, the rotations have been going for 17 years now. Up in the Arctic, it's been different. It's been every two to three years, there's been some sort of mission. It's really expensive and difficult to get up there, but those also are part of the Mars Society's overall uh, analog research count on missions conducted. So this is my fifth one, I mentioned that, and I also had a, a sixth one that was in the Arctic, so overall this is my sixth Mars Society mission. So yeah, exciting stuff, and the way to do it is with these two-week rotations, they run them approximately from November through March, March-April, um, because it gets way too hot in the summer in Utah. And that's how they slowly build up all these numbers. It's pretty crazy. So my first mission was with Penn State, Mars Society. Uh, it was Crew 25, and that was in 2000, oh God, I don't even know, 2004 or five. I think it was 2004, maybe it's five. It doesn't really matter, it's a long time ago. Uh, so I was on Crew 44 and Crew 56, 58, and now 188. And then in the Arctic, it was called Foxy LDM, the uh, FMARS 11th crew, like FXI, uh, LDM for long duration mission. Next question is, how big is the research station and habitat? So I, I recorded a video that I encourage you to check out on YouTube, and it gives you a shot of what the campus looks like. The main habitat is essentially a two-story tuna can. Uh, I believe it's eight meters in diameter. Uh, so the bottom level is really for the airlocks, the spacesuit equipment room, and then kind of a, the older science lab that's downstairs is now more of an ops lab. The upstairs has six kind of slotted bedrooms with a centralized work area station for, for both meals and working and a small kitchen as well. Um, I'm in the green hab right now as I record this. I can't tell you the square footage, but it's definitely bigger than the apartment that I had in Cambridge when I was living in Boston. There's also a giant science dome, which is awesome, but the acoustics aren't great in there for uh, recording audio, so that's why I'm not in there today. But it has a huge window view uh, overlooking the Martian-like surface, including Phobos Peak. There's also uh, two observatories. One is a has a, a smaller scope in it, so you can just barely fit. You know, if you were to fit people all around it, you could do that. Um, like eight people or whatever, but of course that's just shoulder to shoulder to give you an idea of the volume. Um, and it has a solar lens on it, a hydrogen alpha filter, so you can stare at the sun. Uh, and then there's a small robotic dome that's designed to be remotely operated, either like you know teleoperated from Earth or even by the the crews here. So check that out, so you can see the sizing. Even on the Mars Desert Research Station website for the Mars Society, they have some of the sketches of just the habitat as well. Next question, trucking right along here. Is the food you eat during the mission similar to what is eaten on the ISS? Great question. Yes and no. There have been food studies that have been conducted out here, and some of the food could be eaten very easily by the crew on station. Uh, there's kind of two fundamental differences. One is a lot of ours is dried uh, processed food, so if you think of like dehydrated fruit, like apple slices and blueberries and broccoli, and you have to add water to cook them, including the, even the chicken and the meat, they're all shelf stable. Uh, you wouldn't want to eat those on space station because it would create a lot of crumbs. So that's one of the big big differences there. The other is that our food actually needs to be what you would consider Mars approved or Mars stable, meaning that it could have a shelf life of two years before it would even be opened. I'm pretty sure that most of our food expires in six months or is recommended to be eaten by six months, but I can tell you from eating it that without adding water it could probably last a long time. So. 
the food is provided by the Mars Society and they try to cover the, the quantity needed for six people and the development is how do you create the right diet as well, which is very difficult. I mean, we have two vegetarians on our crew, one is a vegan, uh, three of the crew members are gluten-free diets. Two of them are actually celiac, meaning they just can't have gluten. It's not a life choice, it's a physical choice. And so all of those things would be addressed in mission planning anyway, so it's not, it's not a big deal. It just means that different food would be provided to make sure those astronauts have the, a balanced meal. So um, food on Mars, really important. Uh, my friend Kim Binstead, who I was in the Arctic with, actually created the whole high seas analog research station in uh, Hawaii based off of a food study that we had piloted at FMARS during our rotation. So herself and Jean Hunter from Cornell, you know, had the proposal in, the station was created, and you know, multiple years later and multiple crews later, having they have a great facility and work great work continues to come out from there as well. So next question, what makes Utah an ideal location for the project? Great question. Utah is very Mars-like, as you've probably seen from photos. Uh, it's an ancient ocean. Life was here in abundance, and uh, as our planet evolved and changed, uh, obviously the water flowed differently, and there's evidence of aquatic fossils all over the place here. There's a a large presence of dinosaur uh, bones and remains. Uh, those are, you know, not part of our simulation, but just kind of a, as a heads up, you know, of life existing in this extreme environment. And now it's very barren. There's, you know, scrub brushes and an occasional bird, uh, but it's very desolate. Not a lot of life out there uh, in this desert. But it's it's breathtaking. And what's interesting about that the um, kind of the ancient geological time that's captured here, it's very exposed too because of the way the sandstone easily erodes in wind, you expose all these layers of geological time. So it's a very interesting site for um, geologists to visit as well as biologists. And for everyone else, it looks like Mars. So that's already, you know, a, a big selling point, but it's a great location. All right, so next question. How close are the spacesuits you wear during the EVAs to the ones being developed by, uh, for future planetary exploration, and have they evolved since the project started? Good questions. Um, so the spacesuits, they're not the technology you would wear, but they do help you with the constraints needed to create a simulation. So the we wear kind of a, a thick painter's coverall over our clothes. That particular part doesn't really mimic the uh, pressurized spacesuit and how you would lose mobility. Even if you had a mechanical counterpressure suit, uh, that part isn't quite simulated. But uh, the backpack and helmet are extremely heavy. The 30 pounds, so you can do the math on kilos there, just uh, divide by 2.2 and so it's a lot of weight to carry around and it, it limits your visibility so you would have that similar possible helmet design and that's something that they're working on is do you make the neck bearing rotate or is it a solid piece to the rest of the body of the suit um, it's kind of an ongoing design uh, debate if you will or do you make the helmet more like a motorcycle helmet closer to your head uh, with less volume but then there's an airflow problem um, so all these are on the design con considerations so that part definitely mimics the weight in the the lack of mobility because of that weight and the way you can actually function. You can't just like easily just scoop, grab something, scoop it up and plug it in. You know, you have to angle yourself in such a way that you can safely see what you're doing. I know it's not the best example, but it was yesterday, so it's easy to remember. I actually fueled up the three ATVs with gas wearing the spacesuit. So I had to carefully open the valve 
on the uh, tank kind of in front of my face instead of below my body like you know I had to lift it up I actually sat on the ATV and slowly poured them with my head extremely close to that opening so I could actually see into the tank and obviously the bubble itself was protecting me from getting the fumes right in the face but things would every everything that's operations related is completely different uh, usually crews are are required to wear bulky gloves kind of like ski gloves and that mimics the lack of dexterity that you would have wearing a real spacesuit. I'm wearing real space gloves. I'm not wearing a pressurized suit, but uh, we've added layers within those gloves. Uh, well, not we, by we, I mean Final Frontier Design, to mimic the, um, the the cushion or the padding that would be in there taking away from the motion. And so they're, you know, they're really big and not heavy, but bulky. And um, I, I, I think they've been working out really well. It definitely limits me from doing all the fine motor skill things that I would want to do. If you had anything that's touchscreen, of course, on Mars, you would, or anywhere you go, you would need either a stylus or integrated stylus into the glove. I've purposely bought things like my GPS unit with buttons so that I would know I would be able to push them. Um, I've used my cameras long enough that I know where the buttons are and what they do. So it's like you don't really necessarily need that. And that's that's on the training side. So you train for those things. And then finally, uh, we wear boots or heavy shoes. Those you want fitting, customized for every single person. Just like anyone who's out in the field on an excursion for weeks or whatever, you need to have the right footwear. You asked about how they evolved. They are very similar to what I wore 10 years ago here. Um, not a lot changed. The uh, back of the backpack used to be like a Tupperware container underneath the um, under the hood, if you will, underneath the uh, cloth. And now they're actually Pelican cases, and so they're much more robust, and they can take a little bit more uh, wear and tear from all these crews. But they, that doesn't mean that they are heavier. So that's really the only change that I've seen. And the crews bring their own jumpsuits now. Next question. Can you tell us about the collaboration with NASA Glenn Research Center during the mission? So I, I did mention that, so I think we can move on, but I'm really happy to be working with them. During my PhD, I actually had two summers uh, working at NASA Glenn as part of my collaborative research on dust abrasion, and I uh, really enjoyed being in Cleveland in the summer. It's beautiful. I was out on the water sailing all the time. I, you know, I'm a sailor, so I love that. And uh, so it's great to be working with them again, because it's been a while since I've done dust-related research. Next question is uh, Embry-Riddle, uh, Aeronautical University students will be assisting during the mission. Can you tell us about their role? Yeah, so they are kind of my mission support specifically for my projects, or our, not my projects, our projects. I am, I've been sending them photos to help me with social media for our labs. So they've been posting things for, uh, at our at Spacesuit Up. That's all our social media handle for everything. And they've been answering questions uh, online as well. And then I've been pinging them a lot for different tech support on different projects. So after we ran the spacesuit range of motion project, I actually sent them a whole bunch of feedback, an audio tape of us, a tape, you know what I mean, audio recording of us talking about the test and so that they could uh, learn about it. And already they've been working on updates to make that protocol and checklist better so that we can send it out to some of the other analog research stations. They've also helped with other troubleshooting with um, some of the other projects and they're really there to be a go-to kind of group to ping ideas off of and to kind of keep the motivation going and, and vice versa. Like I want to keep them interested in these activities because I want them to take a lead on a lot of these projects as we move forward with the lab. The lab's only a year old, so it's really new. So we're really just getting getting our, our feet dirty, if you will. 
Next question. I understand that there are other Mars analog missions taking place around the globe at the same time. Will you be in contact with them? We're going to be in contact with a group, the group that's in OMEN. It's the MND-18 mission. It's a huge international project run by the Austrian Space Forum. Uh, they're going to be on Mars at the same time that we're on Mars, meaning both simulations are going to be actively on Mars. So we're going to actually have a live Mars-to-Mars -Mars hangout where we're able to communicate with them directly with, with very little time delay, just the normal internet time delay, assuming that the infrastructure on Mars would allow one base camp to talk to the other. We're doing it as an outreach project in terms of, you know, it sounds really interesting, it hasn't really been done before, but it's actually really important when you think about not just colonization, but future infrastructure of how do we communicate even point to point around Mars with um, different satellite technologies. So it's just something to keep in mind. Uh, the other mission that's happening almost at the same time is in Israel with the Israeli Mars Society. And unfortunately, because we're not in the simulation overlap with them, we won't be talking from Mars to Mars, but I hope to be chatting with them either before their mission or after their mission. So that way we can collaborate in the future with them as well. Next question is between the crew members, how many Mars analog missions have you been involved with? and were they all at the Utah Research Station. So I told you a little bit about my background. This is my fifth time in a simulation at MDRS, and I had one simulation at FMARS. I've actually been back at MDRS two other times to help be a judge at the University Rover Challenge that occurs out here. And other crew members, Renee has been out here, I believe this is her third time, but the other crew members haven't been at this particular location, but they have had other experiences. Uh, Dr. Sarah Jane Pell has been involved with a lot of different analog related locations and topics and you know, check out all the cool things she's done on her website as well. Finally, our uh, last question here, uh, do the experiments and research carried out during the mission have benefits for Earth as well as exploration of, of planets? Absolutely, I think the research that we do here is going to be extremely helpful for how we explore anywhere we go and how we explore Earth as well. You know, we just learning about human efficiency and um, how we might be able to conduct field explorations or figuring out our limits is extremely important. But I'm hoping that that our work is not just space exploration related, but does have those spin-offs. And you might hear a buzzing in the background. That's our generator kicking on. And my, that might be my uh, two-minute warning now. So we're really hopeful that that does help with uh, uh, make exploration more efficient, human performance enhanced, uh, to ensure that we have what it takes to venture to the red planet. So with that, I think I'll close. And I'm more than happy to follow up with other questions. Uh, but this is been a lot of fun to receive your questions and I'm, I'm glad that people were engaged and uh, greetings to people in the UK and around the world from the middle of nowhere Utah at the Mars Desert Research Station. I'm Dr. Ryan Kobrick. Thank you for listening and have a great day. Space suit up. So it was really great of Ryan to actually send that file through to us, wasn't it? Oh, absolutely. You know, to take the time out to do that, that was very nice of him. And it was really good of the Mars Society to allow us to have the recordings as well. There will be some stuff in the show notes because he did do his video diaries, if you like, of his time there and he did do a tour of the facility and uh, all that kind of stuff so we'll be putting those videos up on there 
uh, and uh, links to the mission so you, you can all have a look at that and if you have anything else that you want to find out about the mission that you can't find on the the links and things that we send you I mean we can get in touch with Ryan and we can ask him extra questions if you have anything that you want to ask so uh, if there is anything there get in touch send an email to garbagepod at virginmedia.com and we can sort it out for you so we're going to take another break and when we come back we're going to have a special guest on canvas with paint in the artist's school it is red that is hot and blue that is cool but in science we show as the heat gets higher a star will glow red like the coals of a fire raise the heat some more and what is in sight behold the star glows bright white but the hottest of all i say unto you is neither red nor white when a star has turned blue this is Arnold J. Rimmer from Red Dwarf. You're listening to TGP Nominal. Listen to it. We are joined today by the Tracking and Data Relay Satellites Project Manager for NASA Goddard Space Flight Center, who is Dave Lippman. Welcome on board TGP Nominal, Dave. Good morning. Now... I know everything at NASA has an acronym, and the tracking and data relay satellites are no different. So if we refer to them as TDRIS, our listeners will know what we're talking about. So, Dave, what is TDRIS, and what does being a TDRIS project manager actually involve? So if we go back to the Apollo days when we had uh, the, the first launches and putting men on the moon, the communications at that time was basically sent directly back from that point on in the moon and in orbit around the moon back to Earth directly. But the coverage was only about 15% of the time because the Earth was rotating and we had to have tracking stations all over the world. In the early 1980s, we decided to change the game by effectively putting a cell tower in space. And that is what the tracking and data relay satellite uh, and we have a constellation uh, you know, out there of a number of them. And what they do is they provide the capability to change the 15% of coverage to 24-7 in terms of being able to communicate to uh, the astronauts to cover human spaceflight as well as bring data back from the orbiting missions that we have out there. So it's a game changer. It gets us data 24-7 you know, in space back to Earth. Is there still the odd one or two blackouts? There used to be what we used to call a zone of exclusion where there was a blackout portion, and that portion was largely over the Indian Ocean. NASA closed that zone of exclusion in, uh, in right around the year 2000 by putting you know, their ground station over at Guam. So that allowed us, and we were able then to move our Tedris constellation in space to give us worldwide coverage. The only spots where we have you know, a little bit of, of a miss is at the very, very polar regions, the North Pole and the South Pole. We can see them for you know, some portions of the day, but other than that, the, the entire world is covered by the Tedris constellation 24-7. So these are not geostationary then? They're constantly orbiting? Um, no, they are geostationary spacecraft, and so we have three of them. We have uh, what, what we call one is in the Atlantic Ocean region, another is in the Pacific, and a third is in the Indian Ocean region. So with those three satellites, they can cover the, uh, the, the world, and they are in geosynchronous orbit. So you've got three satellites right now. How old is the oldest? We actually have, with this last spacecraft that launched in August, there are ten oh. spacecraft that are actually up there right now. The You know, the, the way we... Uh, configure, you know, the the coverage for the world is in those three ocean regions, and then we kind of have spacecraft 
uh, available to support unique things for us and and things like that so uh, we actually this is the first time that we've ever had 10 operational and we've launched 13 the second spacecraft was lost unfortunately in the challenger accident back in the 80s and then there have been two that have um, been retired because their useful life uh, you know, had, had been expended their primary elements that served communications on those spacecraft. And so we retired two of them. What do you do with those? So Just deorbit them? We actually push them into what we call a graveyard orbit. There is some there is uh, additional fuel on those spacecraft and there's a, a higher uh, orbit that they're pushed into where, where, where there is no really nothing out there. It's we call it a graveyard type of orbit. And then we push them out into that into that orbit. And then we basically passivate or deactivate all like active components on the spacecraft to limit the uh, possibility of of orbital debris created by any type of explosions or things like that so we mm. we deactivate and passivate you know all of the uh, all of the active components on the spacecraft you've had them in sort of like generations haven't you so you've got the first second and third generation satellites up there how many of the the original first generation satellites are actually still up there there were seven first generation uh, spacecraft i mentioned that we lost one uh, and then we retired two others. So there are four currently of the first generation up there right. that are that are functioning. And then we have three second generation and three third generation now with the last Tedris M that just launched here last August. What difference do the third generation satellites make compared with with the older models? There are a number of differences. You know, our look at them as by sort of block changes or sort of new versions of a of a of a vehicle per se. This generation, the third generation spacecraft, it. it it upgraded its technology to the current technology uh, that, that's out there for our payload. As we came out of the second generation, there were things that were moved to be on board the spacecraft that we found the users preferred to see on the ground. So we moved some things back to the ground. We upgraded our technology on the uh, spacecraft itself to the current technology. We changed some of our communications to uh, involve the latest security updates and things like that. Just brought our, and just like you get IT updates from from your, your providers for your computer, we, we upgraded to uh, be the current uh, technology and standards that are out there today. What kind of missions actually rely on TDRS? So there is a host of missions that rely on TDRS. What is very interesting, the TDRS constellation over the decades, as you mentioned, has really been able to uh, sort of expand or grow how it, it's, it's been used. So one of the things that it does, it is able to actually track launches of missions here on Earth. So actually, the two TDRS spacecraft that were launched in 13 and 14 tracked the launch of this last one that went up in uh, August. So we track a lot of launches, and then, then we support missions from space. You know, we supported the shuttle program until it was retired. We currently support all human spaceflight activities, resupply missions to the space station, all of the discussions with the astronauts on board the space station. We also support a lot of missions that are gathering data for the Earth. We have uh, what we call the Earth Observing System, Landsat, our missions that take data from Earth to gain uh, understanding of our climate. A lot of that data comes back through TDRS. We also extend out further. We're looking and we bring back all of those images back from the Hubble Space Telescope, the images of the cosmos. Um, that data actually still comes back from TDRS as well. So we can come from the cosmos to, to Earth, 
to launches and then human spaceflight. We support over 40 missions currently. Wow. Is TDRS actually used by other agencies and organizations? We, we do as uh, other agencies are, are out there. We support, as I mentioned, we, the launches. We support the launches for other, other agencies. Department of Defense will support their launches. We will support other um, agencies such as the uh, NOAA weather satellites. We support them as well and we'll support uh, other customers or missions as they you know, come to us and look for support. Is it just used for space communications or are there other benefits on Earth like in disaster areas or remote locations that need communications? There are applications uh, on the Earth here. One that I would maybe point to is uh, down in Antarctica. There is uh, there's a, you know, a big science community that every summer in you know, spring and summer season, they are conducting experiments and taking a lot of data down in Antarctica. But the problem there was they you know the only way to get that data back to the states or back you know connected was really to kind of put it on ships or put it on airplanes. But during the winter months, you know there was there were you know, long periods where that data had stayed there on the ice. So what TDRS is able to do during some periods of its orbit, it's able to see the Antarctic. And so we were able to bring data back from the Antarctic. And so there was a big effort to put communications down in the Antarctic to look up and relay their data from the Earth to TDRS. And even we helped support TDRS, helped support a medical mission. Um, there was a, a woman there who had, had been diagnosed uh, with, with needing some surgery. Um, it was priority and Tedris supported the medical data and the communication with the doctors and basically was part of the success for that activity as well. Wow, that just changes everything when you hear about stories like that. Yeah, it's kind of a game changer and it, it, it definitely caught the media's attention and it's something like I said that we still point to today as to how, you know, what we're able to do, you know, when the problems arise, we, we, we find ways to, to solve them. For me, a moment that was a reality check about how data is sent and received from the ISS was when Butch Wilmore, an astronaut, uh, needed a, a ratchet wrench that he didn't have on board so he could complete a task. And a design file was transmitted from the ground to the recently installed Made in Space 3D printer that's on board the ISS. And then within a few hours, he physically had the wrench in his hand and was able to complete the task. Now, that's pretty amazing. Because of that kind of concept, do you think that this will change the way we, we handle space travel in the future, i.e. we can send 3D files up to different planetary services and actually build things before astronauts and whoever get up there? I think you bring up an excellent point, and I think the, you know, ultimately, you know, definitively, I think the answer to your question is yes. I think your example is, is a great one to show sort of how we've sort of, you know, they always say the world is a smaller place, you know, that, you know, even the Olympics, right? It, it creates the world to kind of almost feel like we're closer together by having that technology there and having the ability to transmit in you know, that that data like you said the data file to a 3d printer such that he could print the wrench that he needed and then have the tool that he needed there right without needing it to be brought up himself i think is a clear example of how we can apply technology to the future to get ourselves you know out to the moon as well as then you know look at what we can do to explore uh, the you know, and the and the tools that we should have along with us and and the capabilities that we need to bring to kind of bring that capability into space with us. 
it will make it so that it'll be lighter for any future missions because they won't have to carry everything with them. They can actually create it when they get there. So That's exactly right. It'll make things so much easier. Um, yeah, there, there's always something when you go on a trip, right? You're, you're halfway through your trip and you realize, gosh, darn it, I forgot this. I forgot that, <laughs> right? So. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. well, you know what? I can print that, right? Just send me the file and I'll print it, right? So it's, it's, it's really cool technology, and I think it has a lot of application, as you say, for a lot of different benefits. What's next for Tetris? Are there plans for any more satellites to be in, installed into the constellation, or so? Right now, as we as we see it, this last you know, this spacecraft will be kind of the last of it of this architecture, with the large uh, articulating antennas on it. What we are looking at now is to introduce another game-changing technology, which is really to communicate instead of using radio frequency and microwave, is to basically change the medium of that technology to lasers which is to use optical and you to use light to, to basically communicate the data. That will allow the spacecraft to become a little smaller because you can, you, it becomes densified and, and rather than having large antenna apertures, you can move them down to uh, you know, 10 centimeters, 10 to 20 centimeter apertures. And that will allow us to you know, have smaller, lighter spacecraft as well as bring the data down quicker as well as bring a lot more data down faster. But that's communicating so how, between the satellites and Earth, correct? You're still going to need radio that, for things like um, any Mars missions and so forth. So, the, so the the way we will communicate with with Mars and and those missions is is something that that will continue to evolve over time. I believe that they will look at applications for lasers, you know, well out beyond Earth. They, they you know, they will look at the ability to communicate via optical, the exploration missions. Uh, that NASA has, uh, you know, is studying right now, have optical technology as part of the overall puzzle as they as they look to solve the uh, the communication uh, element of that. That is some mind-blowing precision that's needed to do that, though. Absolutely. The, the, the precision and the stability, you know, to kind of focus a light beam, you know, on a, on a stable platform is clearly, it appears mind-blowing, but, you know, what we were able to do you know, even back in the 70s, right, by put a, a person on the moon back when we were kids, you know, or even maybe before some of us were born, right? That was mind-blowing then. So I think all we have to do is imagine it. And, uh, you know, if, if we can imagine it and put it out there, the things that we saw as sci-fi when we were kids too, a lot of that has come to come to a, a reality. I think you're right. I think it's a case of saying nothing is impossible. That's right. Because if you actually look at that word, you put a little uh, apostrophe between the I and the M, it says I'm possible. That's really good, actually. <laughs> My aunt used to have a, a sign on her wall that used to say, nothing is impossible, although some people are. <laughs> so that quote, you know, the, there is a quote that says, nothing's impossible, and it says, I'm possible. That actually was, you, know, you can look it up. It, as Catherine Hepburn actually kind of made oh. made that uh, made that note, you you can find that. That's her quote is on my door at, at work in the office. Wow! As long as you've got imagination, it's it's pretty much possible. Yeah, and I think like you said, even even the 3D printer, right? You know, who would have who would even imagine, right, that we would be able to print tools. And then, like I said, put a printer in space and then you know, upload a file and then print something that we didn't have up there. Who would have imagined that? Yeah. Right? But, but like once we imagined it we, and said, you know, there's an application for it, let's, let's make it happen. And we did. Yeah, that completely changed, changed my outlook on and how we do things in space when I saw that actually happen. That was, as you say, a game changer. You said they're, they're currently the satellites are up there. The next ones are going to be a new format. 
you know, as you said, to go more uh, laser based and so forth. Are those already being worked on? Is there a projection for the first of the next generation to be launched? There was a demonstration of laser technology with a with a mission to to the moon. That was we, we put a, a spacecraft on orbit into the moon, and we were able to send back data through laser technology at six times the the data rate that ever had been sent before. That was about 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 three four years ago. We are now in the process of putting together what what's called LCRD, as you mentioned, acronyms. That's Laser Communication Relay Demonstration. So it's kind of taking a laser capability to, to relay data and to put that in geosynchronous orbit and then to show that that, you know, you know that the technology is there, right, there, there, that we're ready uh, to take that next step, which is to kind of introduce it, you know, in, in, in large form and to put it into the network. That activity, that launch is, I think, scheduled for late 2019, so actually late next year. Those guys are working on it here at Goddard. Uh, and things are going well. Then we'll then we have studies going on as to how we would put that into you know the uh, an architecture for the uh, a next generation type of uh, spacecraft. So how does that actually work with the laser communication? Is it actually line of sight? Does does that mean if something gets in the way of the signal, there's a problem or yeah so laser technology does require line of sight so so cloud cover and things like that are th- are sort of uh, you know things that need to be worked around to either either be able to store some data on board until the you know until things clear up so you can have a you know a direct line of sight to have a in an alternate you know spot where if you don't have a direct line of sight in to one location you could have a, a direct line of sight to an alternate location or to potentially have a, a microwave RF type of uh, capability on board as a backup, you know, in the in those events where you're able to, you know, store it. And once you store on board for some period of time to relay some of it back to the earth using, you know, what we would call conventional means today. That's all part of the studies that are going on to understand what the availability, what we would call availability of using laser com would be, you know, against the weather and, and anything that would get in the way. You know, yeah, helps. yeah, definitely. As new satellites come in, obviously they're going to be significantly better than the older ones. Is there any scale to removing the older ones from service, or is more bandwidth better bandwidth? Bandwidth is more and better bandwidth is uh, is, is always something that we're interested to to provide for. What we do see, as you say, is that future missions here will kind of increase their capability and want more bandwidth, which is why we are looking to uh, move to laser type of technology as a way of doing that. With respect to the existing constellation, we've never had a case, and I don't foresee a case, where we would uh, sort of put something out of service if there was useful bandwidth still to be there for the taking. Um, if it was lower bandwidth, I haven't seen the case where we've run out of it and we need to push something out of the way because we've got something higher bandwidth ready to take over. We'd find a way to to add something you know, rather than replace something if as long as there was useful capability and bandwidth. Right. So, so then what constitutes the reason? You said the two of the satellites have already been pushed out into that graveyard orbit. What constitutes that? Is it just that components start breaking down because of radiation or fuel concerns or what? Generally, the life-limiting items on the uh, the first-generation spacecraft, two of that have been retired, you know, are is either the either the fuel that's on board, as you say, 
or what we call the well, the traveling wave tube amplifiers. We call them tweetas. Um, those are the amplifiers that are needed, you know, in in those large articulating antennas to basically be amplified to provide this the signals back down to earth. Those have been shown to be the uh, the life limiting items. And as those fail, um, we have, like I said, we have two big antennas on our architecture, and then we have a smaller array in in front that provides our multiple access service. As those as those uh, amplifiers fail, we, we maintain the, what we call a health, a health check of our spacecraft. And when, when we'll see how many we have left, how much capability we have, we've had some that will fail one antenna, but the other antenna is fully functional. And so the spacecraft you know, still serves in the, the missions. But those are the two big life-limiting items that will, would generally push us, you know, push us to say the spacecraft you know, has, has reached the end of its useful life. You've got three different kinds of communication networks. So you've got the, the near-Earth network, the space network, and the deep space network. How do they differ? Just out by their names, I think you, I think you guys recognize that the deep space takes us out to Mars, Jupiter, Saturn. The Cassini mission would you know, kind of take, back, take the data back from the deep space network. There are very large antennas in a couple places in the world, right? There's one in, in Canberra, Australia. There's another one in Spain, and there's, a, there's another one in California. Large, large antennas because they, they're needed to communicate that deep into space. So th- that's the network that manages them is the Deep Space Network out of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in California. The near-Earth network is managed here at Goddard. Uh, that has a, uh, a number of different assets across you know, you know, the U.S. as well as uh, a number of places internationally. They will take data from you know, missions that are a little bit closer to Earth and that are a little more ground-based in their, uh, you know, those in terms of where they receive their data, you know, directly to ground sites. There's some at Wallops. There's some up in Alaska. Uh, there's there's some down in South America. So it's a, another network that has a lot of missions to it. It's, it's just a different type of, of service that's provided there. So is there an actual limit to where, uh, for example, with the Deep Space Network, uh, how far you can actually go out with it, or does it just depend on the size of the antennas we have on Earth? It's a combination of the size of the antennas that we have on Earth, the size of the antenna on the TDRS spacecraft, you know, in terms of this discussion for the for the tracking and data relay satellites, as well as the the power and the capability of the spacecraft themselves. So you have something that's way out at, out at Saturn in order in order to communicate back to to Tedris and to use Tedris so the the amount of power that would be required and the size of the antennas would just you know it just would not uh, really be something that would be considered in terms of the number the amount of weight and the amount of changes to the architecture that would be used that's why they would go to a there they would be a more of a candidate for deep space application so how can our listeners find out a bit more about uh, Tedris and uh, everything involved with it? So you can go out there on Google and, and, and look for us. You can, you can find us on you know, TedrisNASA.gov. But, I mean, I think for social media-wise, I think our Twitter, our Twitter handle is uh, NASA underscore TDRS. Uh, you can find us there. Um, and we look forward to kind of, you know, our, our followers and, uh, you know, continuing to watch us and, and, and be, be part of us as, as we go forward. Awesome. Well, Dave, it's been an absolute honor to uh, speak with you today. The the, the honor's mine to kind of be able to talk with you guys, to talk with the UK and to talk with, you know, just up the road here in, uh, I think, Harrisonburg, Harrisonburg, PA. You know, it's, it's really, really great, guys. Thank you. Thanks again.
Good morning. It's T minus 45 minutes until the final countdown commences. In less than one hour, if all goes according to plan, the three members of the Apollo 11 crew will blast off in their. My father's name was Edwin Eugene Aldrin. Has dreamt of mankind's greatest adventure. I became Buzz. Destination: the moon. We looked back at the Earth and watched it get smaller. Oh, it was beautiful. Apollo 11, this is Houston. I've got the morning news here, if you're interested, over. Go ahead, Houston. An Irishman has won the world porridge eating championship by consuming 23 bowls of instant oatmeal. I'd like to enter Aldrin in the oatmeal eating contest next time. He's on his 19th bowl. Roger. Human nature and curiosity is to explore the world around us. And the world around us includes way beyond. Go for landing, over. I do anything, go for landing. Roger, 1202, we copy it. We're go, same type, we're go. Okay, engine stop. We copy you down, Eagle. Beautiful, beautiful. next generation of explorers should not ever give up. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of TGP Nominal on its infinite mission to explore space, science, and technology news. To explore the world of sci-fi, comic-cons, and gaming. To boldly go where no podcast has gone before. Welcome back to TGP Nominal. Now, we have our resident astronomer on the line all the way from Milton Keynes. Ross, how you doing, sir? Very well, mate, very well. It's a bit cold here at the moment. Apparently the beast from the east is on its way, which will ruin my nights, but yeah, all good. It was supposed to hit quite hard yesterday, but um, we had a little bit of hail, actually, to start with, and then a tiny bit of snow, and that was about it, really. Yeah, yeah, that's all I got, a bit of snow in the morning. I had to cancel visiting the school because I thought, oh, no, if I get there and it snows, I'm on a motorbike, <laughs> I might not get back. But then nothing happened, and I was like, oh, man. Wow. But it's to come, apparently. So you were actually doing one of your talks actually on your bike? No, no, I was just meeting a school to uh, set one up, luckily. Yeah, I can't get my 10-inch Dobsonian on a bike. It's a bit uh, <laughs> it's a bit ridiculous. But you've been doing quite a few of these events lately, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, we've been really booked up lately. I have the big ones to come, literally uh, the month we're talking about March. I've got a brownies one night, followed by three schools and a coffee night thrown in in that as well. So, I've, uh, yeah, I'm going to be tired, I think. But it's for the greater good, isn't it, teaching the kids? That's it. Um, <laughs> it's got to be done. You've, you've just done a prestigious event recently at uh, Stowe House, haven't you? It was actually from a guy called, I think it's Neil Sanders. I hope I get his name right. I'm terrible at names. But he runs uh, Go Stargazing, which is kind of like a, a website where you can go on and find out your local stargazing events and what's going on. Mm-hmm. And he, he messaged me saying that Stowe House had popped on there and asked for someone to do astronomy nights like in partnership so i popped down had a coffee with him had a chat and 
Yeah, we did an event and we were so lucky. It was completely clear. The building is amazing. It is. To, have, to, to stand out there. So we had the backdrop of the house slightly lit up. They turned off some lights but because there's quite a lot of steps. You obviously can't. <laughs> you don't want people falling down there into our scopes. So yeah, we, we rocked up there with a uh, Tring Astronomy. Neil and uh, his wife Jane and kid came along and helped us. And yeah, everyone had a fantastic night. It was really good. We looked at the Orion Nebula, we looked at the Pleiades and everything else that was up and about. So yeah, it was a fantastic night. What I think I'll do is I'll put some pictures from the evening up on the show notes so people can have a look at that. Yeah, our friend uh, Derek Pelling, I think he runs uh, Alsbury Gistic News, he came along and took all the pictures. So a proper professional doing professional pictures. Mm-hmm. That's so really it made cool. us look good. <laughs> So I'll have to give him a mention on the on there as well. Yeah, yeah, you can pop a link up if you like. He's a, he's a good friend of ours now. We met him through this sort of thing. And he's actually gone and bought a telescope, so now he's technically part of the UK astronomy crew as well. <laughs> that tends to happen when they meet us. They, they <laughs> tend to run off and buy a scope. So what have you got planned for us? Uh, well, most of the stuff going on this month is uh, the planets. Uh, I do have a constellation that I'm going to talk about, which is going to be our sort of like one of the month. And it's going to be a guide of what you can see there. Uh, there's also a bit of fun stuff to talk about our sun and uh, a few other events that are going on. Some astronomy related, some kind of not, but they do kind of mix in with us. So if I start on the, the first of the month, you've got the first to the sixth. If you watch the solar system's first planet, Mercury, it'll be in the evening sky or the afternoon sky. It's as if it's going to fly up past Venus's right-hand side, so the second planet, Venus, is flying up to the right of that. The two planets will appear really close together on the third. So if you continue to watch over the next month, you'll see that Mercury almost kind of goes past, stops, and then starts to move back down again. And it's kind of like it's in a tight sort of arc. It's going to go past Venus as it kind of swings round and comes towards us in its orbit. All right. So it's kind of going up from behind the sun, almost like it's coming up to Venus and then curving back down as it comes towards us, which is quite cool to see because you can almost see the orbit of Mercury and how it does go around the sun. Then you've got on the second, there's the first of two full moons. So you would get to see uh, yet another blue moon. The fabled, really rare <laughs> blue moon that we've now seen sort of two of <laughs> in the last couple of months. Because you remember on January the 31st, there was a super blue moon eclipse, which is a bit of a mouthful. Mm-hmm. It was one that all the papers were raving about, weren't they? But we couldn't actually see it in this country. Then uh, February had absolutely no full moons whatsoever in it. And then on the 31st of March, we get the uh, second full moon. So really, it's not blue, but there's two full moons in March. So you get a chance to see two. Why not? On the 7th of March, uh, if you haven't seen Jupiter yet, it's going to have a uh, roughly 70% moon, so it's lit about 70%. It's going to be just above it in the morning sky. If you look slightly to the moon's left, you may be able to spot Mars and Saturn. So they're kind of forming a sort of long diagonal line down to the rising sun. Jupiter rises at around midnight, so you do get time to see it in the, in the evening. Now it's starting to become an evening nighttime planet rather than the morning. And then Mars is about 3am, it starts to rise, but uh, don't mistake it for the star Antares. I think we spoke about it in the last one, didn't we? Mm-hmm. So Antares, it does rise before the planet. And as we spoke about before, it does get mistaken for Mars because it is red. It's actually a red supergiant star. And uh, if it was put into the centre of our solar system, its outer surface would lie between sort of Mars and Jupiter. So that's how massive it is. And yeah. it's kind of, it's a bit like Betelgeuse, it's really big and red. Beetlejuice is in Orion, which I speak about a lot because I like the name. And uh, it is actually going to go supernova as well. So you've got two there. 
that might possibly go over in the next million years. Who knows? But I've actually been reading up a bit more about this because I always talk about Beetlejuice exploding, but there are actually quite a few more out there. Yeah. That are towards the end of their lives, and hopefully, <laughs> please one go for me. That's all I ask. This is what red giants are, aren't they? They're stars that are at the end of their life lifespan. Um, yeah. And as we keep pl- uh, playing in on the the show, the the clip we play in with Neil deGrasse Tyson saying that the cooler a star looks, the younger the star is. So when the star is blue, it's at its hottest point, and it goes from blue to white to yellow, and then finally red. And red means it's at its coolest point and is about to die, which is very strange in the the whole scope of colour schemes. Yeah, it's cooler than it was, but it's still uh, really, really hot. Uh, yeah. You, you wouldn't want to be there. But yeah, they say, you know, it's going it, to... Then it starts to expand, doesn't it, as a red giant, and that's why they say that it's going it to... It would be like, you know, our sun is where it is now, and as that gets older, it's going to start to expand and probably come out to about Earth, and uh, that'll be the end of us. Hopefully, we've got <laughs> quite a few billion years, so hopefully... We would have got our butts in gear and got off the planet. Yeah. <laughs> and got somewhere else by then, as long as we look after the planet. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, once they, uh, depending on their mass, so how big they are, it depends whether they go supernova or whether they just kind of throw their gas out into the atmosphere or out into space. And as I call it, their last gasp, which you can see in the Ring Nebula. That's like, that's what's going to happen to our star. Mm-hmm. But yeah, stars are cool. See, they're not just boring little flickery blobs in space. I don't think, anyway. Uh, yeah, so back to was it Antares and Mars and that, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, if uh, if you make a line between Jupiter and Mars, so down sort of like diagonal line down left towards the sun, you'll see Saturn, hopefully. It's quite low. It rises about 4 a.m. You can see it with the naked eye, and you can, probably, you can make it out with scopes, and you'll probably be able to see the rings, but as it's low, there's a lot of atmosphere, and you're really best off if you want to really have a look at it and see it and find it but you want to look a few more months time it's going to get better because we're going to get closer to it so but have a look see all three of the planets there on the 10th if you had trouble finding mars then this morning the crescent moon moves closer to the red planet so it's gone from jupiter and it goes towards the red planet as it sort of wanes it's a great time to spot it with a naked eye as the two kind of make a triangle with saturn so you have a sort of triangle between the moon saturn and mars if you look at Mars over the month with a telescope, you will actually see it is going to get progressively bigger because we're starting to catch up with it in our orbit. It's flying around the outside and we are now catching up on the inside. It's almost like two racing cars. So have a look at it and see if you can see if it gets bigger and bigger. From the 10th onwards, the moon's out the way. So you know what that is. That's my favourite time. <laughs> it's dark. It's time to look at all the cool stuff out there, which is what I enjoy. A lot of people on our Facebook group have been uh, chucking out lots of amazing pictures of the Andromeda Galaxy and Whirlpool Galaxy and things like that because they're up there quite high. And when the moon was out of the way, it's really good to get the stuff. But at this time, I'm going to talk about uh, a constellation, which is called Auriga, because it's nice and high in the, in the sky early on. And we've already talked about Orion and Taurus, and Taurus is kind of joined onto Auriga anyway. And I believe the bottom star of Auriga, where it joins, is actually meant to be part of Taurus. But Auriga is sort of a pentagon that's there. We will have a visual guide on our website, www.ukastronomy.org, for you to follow as you listen. And I know Mark's going to put up a load of pictures and everything that I've written on his for you as well. Yep. So you can see there and have a chat through. So Auriga is known as the chari- charioteer. So he rides a chariot. <laughs> I'm having trouble saying words now. <laughs> So it's like a chariot rider. That's what I should have written. That's easier to say. But 
when you look at the pictures of what it's shown as, it's, it's often and has long been shown as a shepherd cradling either a goat or a goat and its kids. It's been suggested that the uh, the goat in question that's there is actually uh, a Malphia, which is uh, the goat that's famous for suckling the infant Zeus. Apparently, Cronus, which is Zeus's father, was destined or told that he was going to be overcome by his own sons. So he was going to be overthrown and thrown down as a king of the, you know, the planets and gods and everything like that. So he decided that he was going to devour all that were born to him. So he ate his own children. Zeus luckily escaped because his mother's helpers dragged him off from her bosom, which is what created the Milky Way, apparently. But let's not go into too much detail about that. Uh, and Zeus ended up down on Earth in a cave, and that's where he was suckled by a goat, and that helped him survive. So uh, they threw the goat up there as a thank you into the stars. And uh, funnily enough, the bright star Capella, which is in Auriga, is known as the goat star. But if you look closely at it, I think we can see it with telescopes. It actually has two stars. I think if you look even closer, there's actually four. But uh, yeah, it's a binary binary. They have a golden color, which is similar to the color that we uh, see our sun during the day, which is something that I'll go on to later because our sun is not actually yellow. So Capella is the brightest star that we see at night in uh, Auriga. And it's the brightest one that we see that has the same sort of spectral type or color as we see our sun. Now, if you have a pair of binoculars, if you look in the middle of the pentagon of Auriga, there's a big group of stars there that's known as the Leaping Minnow. It's an open cluster. It looks like a, a fish kind of jumping out of the water. So you have a load of stars kind of at the bottom that's like the sea or the, the water. And then it looks like a big one jumping out straight upwards like a fish. I've, I've had a look at it. It's really cool to see. It's a really nice cluster. So see if you can make out the fish in the water. And then just to the left of that, you may see a couple of sort of white smudges within the pentagon. On closer inspection with a scope, or if you've got steady hands, it's not too cold out and you're shaking, you'll be able to make out that they actually look like a big glob of stars. And funnily enough, that's what they're known as. They're known as globular clusters. Uh, there's a trio of these in Auriga. The other one, there's two inside the pentagon. The other one sits just outside. And they're M36, M37 and M38. So if you're looking for them on an app or on a computer, that's the uh, proper names for them, the Messier. And globular clusters, they're pretty much, they're just densely packed collections of ancient stars. Uh, these globs, they can contain hundreds and thousands and sometimes millions of these stars. Uh, there are about 150 known ones that we found so far in the Milky Way. They're estimated to be around 10 billion years old, so really, really old. They formed before even the galaxy flattened out into the spiral disk we know today, which is quite cool to think. And something odd about them as well is they seem to lack in heavy elements. So that's how they know that they're kind of older, because they don't have the heavy elements that we have on our sun. So they might be the ones that actually supernovaed ages ago and created all the heavy elements. You know, other stars that were here created other elements which created ours. Who knows? So that's quite cool to see. If you look a little further, to the left or above depending how the sky has moved on by the time you're looking if you look towards gemini if you look at the twin castor's elongated foot there's one where his foot kind of goes down and sticks out a bit further than the other one and there's a cool cluster there called m35 which is like a big open cluster of blue stars but just next to it is another globular cluster so you can actually see together in the sky with some binoculars all the new stars there bright blue new stars like mark was talking about burning away brightly and young and then you've got the older sort of orange darker redder glob of stars there so you can see both together so you see the old and the new which is quite cool to see yeah i'll pop that all on the uh, website for you you can have fun 
looking. So hopefully you'll be able to see it with the naked eye. You can see all Riga and bits and bobs there. Now you know a bit of mythology as well. And then with binoculars, you can see the clusters and the leaping minnow. And then with a scope, you can look even closer at the globs and actually see all the stars in there. So if we go back to the month ahead, on the 15th, it's back to Mercury and it reaches its greatest eastern elongation. So it's the best time again to spot it at its furthest point from the sun, from Earth's perspective. It sticks right out before it starts curving back in, as I said, towards us. For a scope, it'll be around about the half phase. So as you watch it, you can see the phase change as it comes around towards us and then it'll disappear because obviously the shadow will be behind it. On the 18th, if you find Venus and Mercury, which you should know where they are by now if you've had a, if you've been watching them for half the month, in the afternoon sky, see if you can spot a very slender crescent moon. It'll be kind of forming a line, again, from Mercury and Venus down. So it'll be nearer the sun and it'll be a really, really thin crescent one. It's quite a challenge to see, but it is quite cool to see. Now on the 24th, there's a very special event, apparently, across the whole of the Earth, and it's Earth Hour, which is a global movement which brings millions together across the world to call for greater action on climate change. That's the official term for it. Not only is it great for the environment, but also astronomers, because often the lights of major cities are turned off, well, a certain amount, and that gives us an hour where we can sit there. Perhaps London will turn all its lights off, I think not, but <laughs> you never know. Milton Keynes might have a go as well, so I might see how that goes. And then hopefully, with the lights off, you'll be able to see more of the Milky Way and the, you know, the majesty of our skies. You'll be able to see what it actually looks like without us in the way. So from about 8.30 till 9.30, you've got an hour there. So why not join in, turn your lights off, go out in your garden, have a look, or just pop out somewhere on a hill and watch, see what you can see. Awesome. And then on the 31st, we have our second full moon of the month, which is the fabled, rarely ever seen blue moon, <laughs> which is fantastic. On the 25th, the clocks go forward, which marks it officially British summertime. Woohoo! But it's often still cold and gloomy and <laughs> <laughs> still horrible. But uh, yeah, on the 25th, that's when we do it. Officially, the sun crosses the celestial equator at 4.15 universal time on the 20th. So it's about five days before, and that's when it moves kind of from the southern to the northern celestial hemisphere. And that's known as the northern hemisphere, northern hemisphere's spring. So technically on the 20th is when it officially becomes spring. So I don't know why we do the clocks at that time, but I did have a little look into it. I've heard a lot of stories. Like, so why do we actually do it? Why do we move the clocks? And apparently it's kind of started uh, when an American politician and inventor you may have heard of, Benjamin Franklin. If you haven't, you need to go and look that up because he's quite, he's quite a well-known man. Uh, and he first came up with the idea while in Paris in 1784. He suggested that if people got up earlier, I'm guessing a lot of people didn't <laughs> agree with, when it was lighter, then it would save on candles. So they were trying to save money. But then it wasn't until 1907 that an English builder called William Willett, he actually published a leaflet called The Waste of Daylight. And it was encouraging people to get out of bed earlier. And he himself often used to get cross because he was unable to finish his game of golf because the sun went down. <laughs> <laughs> and a funny fact is, he is actually Coldplay singer Chris Martin. It's his great-great-grandfather. All right. Yeah, that's what I read out. I thought, oh, that's interesting. I've got to chuck that in there. So the idea of moving the clocks forwards and backwards was discussed by government in 1908, but many people didn't like it, so it wasn't made law. <laughs> I wonder why. But in 1916, it was finally decided to do it, which is funny because that was a year after William Willett died. So he did a lot of pamphleting and going on and on and on about it, and he never actually get to see it, poor bloke. But yeah, that's why it happens, apparently. 
And while we're here talking about daylight, I did mention earlier that our sun is not actually yellow. Apparently our sun is white and it's not yellow. And the reason we see it this way is because the short wavelength of blue light is scattered in the sky, which is why our sky here on Earth is blue. The longer yellow to red wavelengths are left to carry on down because they're not scattered as easily to reach our eyes, thus making us see the sun this color. So it's kind of a yellow red or yellow, which we've, you don't really see it red doing unless it starts to uh, set. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was quite interesting. So I started to look at other planets and I thought, right, what does it look like on other planets then? If we've got a blue sky and a yellow sun, I mean, you get a mix of colors, don't you, when the sun sets? Yeah. But quite a lot of red. I was like, right, so I looked up Mercury and Mercury has no atmosphere. So the sunlight isn't scattered at all, really. The day is black up in the sky and it's dotted with stars still. So for me, that'd be fantastic. I could do daytime astronomy, but the sun would be almost three times as big as it is here on Earth. So it would completely dominate the sky. Imagine that, a massive sun, three times the size. That's that's pretty cool. Probably not for my skin, but (laughs) I do quite like the idea of that. So then I thought, right, let's have a look at Venus. Uh, And the atmosphere, as we hopefully know, of Venus is really, really, really thick. So the sun doesn't really penetrate very well. And they say that it's not really distinguishable in the daytime skies. You can't really see it. The stars are not visible at night at all because, again, too much atmosphere. But colour images taken by uh, the Soviet, was it, is it Venera probes? You yeah. probably know this better than me, yeah. They suggest that the sky on Venus is kind of a, a yellow or a yellow-orange all the time. And I imagine it just gets slightly darker, orange or yellow. Or maybe it's orange at night, yellow during the day because the sun's not there. So that would be really horrible for me to be on that planet. <laughs> I'd never see anything. And if you if you were there, you'd probably have no clue that there were any other planets or stars or anything but you because you wouldn't have been able to look out of it unless, you know, you made spaceships actually got out later on in time so yeah that's a bit crazy if we look at mars around sunset and sunrise in the martian sky it's actually a pinkish red in color but around sort of like where the sun is setting it actually goes blue which is kind of we were talking a little bit earlier weren't we, before we came on air that it's actually the opposite to earth we yeah. have a blue sky and then a red sort of sunset they kind of have a, a pinky red normal sky and then a blue sunset and if I remember rightly, one of the rovers that are on Mars actually managed to capture the sunset, so you can actually see it. I'll have to try and dig mm, out yeah. a picture of it. Yeah, I did Google that when I was looking this up. I had a little look, and it does show that picture. It's quite a cool picture. Because mm-hmm. they've also got a picture of uh, Earth, haven't they, in yeah. the sky there? Yeah, and that's quite cool to see how far away we are, yeah, and that, you know, you can see Earth. little blue fleck in the sky it would be quite cool imagine if they could get a telescope there to then zoom back to see the earth that would be well for an astronomer it's quite sad but I'd like to see that that would be pretty cool (laughs) go to Mars with your scope and have a look at earth (laughs) so yeah during the day it's kind of like a yellowy brown so they say like a butterscotch sort of sky so as you can see it really depends on how the atmosphere scatters the light as to what colour the sky is or the sun could be so why not this month sit out one afternoon and you can see the array of scattered colours our sun sets on earth wait till it disappears and look up into the night sky and you'll be able to see a multitude of different coloured stars you've got Capella as we spoke about is yellow you've got Sirius which is white Betelgeuse is red Rigel is blue Castor is white Pollux is orange and then just sit there and think that from space or another planet or you know a spaceship our sun actually looks white up in the sky so that's a happy spring from me and a uk astronomy crew because there are a billion wells in your back garden i hope you enjoyed that and thank you mark it's always a pleasure to have you on the show excellent stuff
As I said in the piece there, we're going to put some items in the show notes regarding the stargazing event that he did at Stowe House. And he also mentioned some of the pictures or photographs that some of the group members have uh, been sending in to the UK Astronomy Facebook group. Some of these photos actually relate to what we were talking about there and we're going to put them up in the show notes and give them a name check. Um, So it it brings their art, because it is art, uh, photography is an art form, to another audience and um, you will see how wonderful some of these photographs are. Spanhead Productions are a small independent sound recording company based in rural Hertfordshire. We specialise in creating content for all your podcasting needs, whether it be field recordings, fox pops, or capturing the atmosphere during social events. Editing is a very time-consuming job, so Spanhead Productions are on hand to take away some of the burden for you. Just advise us on how you'd like your content to sound, and we will do the rest. We can even help you design and manage a website for your podcast too. Visit us now, spanheadproductions.com. Weebly.com. That's spamheadproductions.weebly.com. So, John. Yes. Another packed show. Another one, yes. A very packed show, actually. Well, you know. Sometimes you don't get anything at all, and we're just going through news stories, which is not a bad thing because there's a no. lot of stuff going on out there. Or. We do the more geeky side of things, which um, we both enjoy doing as well. But when you get months like this where you've had NASA in touch with you <laughs> twice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then we get the the response from, from Ryan as well. And we've got Rossi's stuff to get out there. And it just, you think to yourself, hang on a moment, that's a great chunk of stuff there before we've even started talking (laughs) so I really enjoy it when we we do get a lot of stuff coming in because it just means our our output is getting better and better all the time yeah that's true that's true well what did you what do you say for the garbage pod your input is our output or something like that yeah that's what we, we we include it for the entire umbrella the network if you like um yeah your input is our output and get your minds out of the gutter (laughs) and it works because we couldn't do it without the the input of other people when we started this podcast we didn't know which way it was going to go no we Uh, didn't (laughs) no and we had no idea the connections we were going to make through this podcast. And it's just been a, an amazing ride. And it's an ongoing thing. It's it's something that keeps growing. And, well, it's just been an absolute joy to, to deal with, hasn't it? Oh, well, absolutely. That's why we keep coming back to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Let's um, face it. Podcasting is one of these things where once you get the bug for podcasting and we've said the the same thing about other aspects uh, when we've been talking about the 3D printing and uh, going to conventions and all kinds of stuff once you get that bug it keeps carrying you and it's the same with podcasting I I will admit I actually do have a few listeners to my widescreen podcast they've been around since the first episode wow that's 10 years ago Uh uh-huh 
and they're still there and they're still sending me emails and tagging me on Facebook. That's the kind of thing that makes you think, wow, that's amazing. Either that or they're crazy. <laughs> I, I know we have listeners that we've known through other people. That's a special feeling that there's this whole kind of, if you like, family out there, an extended audio family. <laughs> yeah, well, or video in some cases. In fact, you know what? Why don't we just give a plug to the guy who really made this podcast possible? And that's our mutual friend, Richard Vobes. Yeah. He yes. really is the one who got this started because I started listening to his podcast when I first started listening to podcasts. Mm -hmm. And I decided, you know what, I'm going to give it a shot. And after being on his show a few times, I was like, yeah, I'll give this a shot on my own. So then I started it. And then you started listening. Mm -hmm. And then you contacted me about, hey, uh, you want to do a space podcast? Yeah. Yeah, pretty so much. So really, it all comes down to Richard Bulbs really is the common link for us. Yeah. So uh, give, give him a plug with going over to the Bald Explorer, which is his latest series that he does over on YouTube. What, do you watch those? I love those things. I do. Um, and I also watch occasionally when he does them, the, the live video feed. His, his live does. Facebook shows. Yeah. That guy's just born to do that stuff. Yeah. Give, give him a look up on YouTube for the Bald Explorer. Bald because obviously he's got no hair in his head. And his, his, his videos are mostly just walking around the English countryside, but... You always learn something from it. And he actually made it onto TV, onto a, one of yeah. the smaller channels. He was on the community channel for a while. Right. I'm not 100% sure. They probably are still repeating some of his <laughs> shows. They might be. I mean, last I heard, they wanted him to do more shows. Yeah. But it just they couldn't fund him, and, and he was running into funding issues. But, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, the demand is out there. But he mentioned one time where he was out recording footage for one of the walks. And some guy came up to him and was like, Oi, you're that guy who does videos, aren't you? He, he was recognized out on the street while recording one of his videos. Yeah. I mean, I must admit, locally, I get that as well. <laughs> <laughs> nice. America's too big. <laughs> I can't get that. I mean, I've had Richard on the show a couple of times. We had Richard on one of our Christmas shows. Oh, that's cool. Uh, just after he'd recorded one of his beer shows. <laughs> <laughs> so he was already loosened up yeah both, <laughs> both him and Jimmy had uh, added a few to drink and uh, we had them both on the Christmas show and there was so much content that we had to cut it into two and we had part of it for our New Year's show as well <laughs> oh he's a fun drunk he gets really silly when the uh, alcohol starts flowing uh -huh. that's the end of this episode and I'd like to thank the guys and girls at uh, NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. It's a wonderful thing that they do, and their outreach program is awesome for getting in touch with people like us and allowing us to be part of it. Obviously, I'd like to thank Ross for being there for us. Uh, he, he does put out a lot of time and effort to write scripts and everything and come up with these new bits and pieces for the show each month. Also, not forgetting Mr. Burger here. Who? It wouldn't be the same without you. <laughs> yeah, it'd probably be a lot more entertaining. <laughs> and also, thanks to everyone out there who listened to the show because it wouldn't be the same without any of you either. So stay tuned to us and we will be bringing you some great stuff in the future. Uh, I've got some 
fingers in a few pies to uh, bring you some content from some really great events. And we'll speak to you again real soon. Well, that about wraps it up for this episode of TGP Nominal. Be sure to visit tgpnominal.weebly.com for the show notes for this or any other episode. Just look for the relevant tab on the menu. If you want to get in touch with us, then... Send an email to garbagepod at virginmedia.com. Because... Your input is our output. Or click on the social media icons on the top left of the page at tgpnominal.weebly.com. If you would like to subscribe to any of our podcasts, you can do so via iTunes, the RSS feed, and also Stitcher and TuneIn On Demand Radio. Don't forget to rate and review us. You can find links on all our podcast pages. If you like what we're doing here, then why not buy us a pint by clicking on the donate button on any of the podcast pages. And don't forget to spread the word about us. Station, this is Houston ACR. Thank you. That concludes the event. <laughs>